بسم الله الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين اللهم اغفر لشيخنا ولوالديه ولمشايخه وللمسلمين أجمعين أما بعد قال الناظم حفظه الله تعالى بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم بحمد ربي الذي إن يردي بعبده خيرا يفقه أبتدي ثم صلاة الله مع سلامي على النبي معلم الأحكام وبعد هذا النظم وهو لصغر في الفقه سهل واضح ميسر فاحفظه يا بني واحفظيه بنيتي ولتفهم ما فيه ساك الله خير الشيخ ستاصف والبسملة and then he goes on to the حمدلة he says, بحمد ربي الذي إن يريدي بعبده خيرا يفقه أبتدي. He says, I start off with doing حمد of Allah سبحانه وتعالى. If you were to now translate الحمد literally, what do we normally find in the uh, tafsir or should I say the translations of the Quran? As soon as you open up Surah Al-Fatiha, how do they translate Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen? All praise. Let me tell you all, brothers and sisters, the English language does not give the Arabic just, uh, the Arabic language justice. And we'll find out how. Here, Alhamdu, my beloved brothers and sisters, it means in the Arabic language, Wasful Mahmoud bil Kamali Ma'am We just mention a whole sentence just to explain what Alhamd, which means to attribute completeness. To the one who's deserving of all praise, coupled with love and glorification. I'll say that again. To attribute completeness to the one who's deserving of all praise, coupled with love and glorification. Let me ask you a question, right? One may praise a certain individual. Does that necessitate that he loves him when he does so? In all cases, one may praise, but it isn't coupled with love and glorification. A little bit like what used to happen back in olden times, right? The king would hold a poetry competition. The one who has the best form of poetry praising the king, he would win. He would walk away with the prize money. So you have the poets entering one after the other, praising the king. The one who has the best form of praise. It is him that walks away with the prize money. Probably the winner, huh, by the time he reaches the outside of the palace, he's speaking bad about the king. right? He's speaking bad about the king, maybe even mocking him, maybe making jokes about him. He praised him. However, did he now couple that with love and glorification? The answer is no. So it is more than just praise. Alhamd is more than just praise. It is to attribute completeness to the one who is deserving of all praise coupled with love and glorification. So the Shaykh says, I start off with doing hamd of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, my Lord, الذي, the one who in yuridi, if he wishes, if he wishes, Good for his servant, bi'abdihi, which means his servant, khayran, which means good. Yufaqih abtadihi. He gives him al-fiqh. He gives him al-fiqh. 
What does al-fiqh mean in the language? Al-fiqh in the language, my beloved brothers and sisters, I will say linguistically, it means al-fahm, which means to understand. Wa alaykum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. It means to understand. Okay? It means to understand. If we narrow it down a little bit more, some of the uh, linguistics, they say, it is to understand something inherently. يعني فهم دقيق To understand it inherently. You can even narrow that down a little bit more. They say فهم معاني المتكلم To understand that which is intended by the speaker. However, all of these different meanings that we mentioned, these linguistic meanings, they all fall under what? الفهم To understand. Like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He tells us about what the people of Shu'aib said to their Prophet that was sent to them. قَالُوا يَا شُعَيْبُ مَا نَفْقَهُ كَثِيرًا مِمَّا تَقُولُ Indeed, O oh Shu'aib, we don't have fiqh of that which you say, meaning we don't understand what you say. Okay, but the term fiqh was used. Also, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He tells us about Musa when He said, قَالَ رَبِّ شْرَحْ لِي صَدْرِي وَيَسِّرْ لِي أَمْرِي وَحْلُ الْعُقْدَةً مِنْ لِسَانِي يَفْقَهُ قَوْلِي Remove any knots from my tongue so that they may have fiqh of what I say. Meaning, they understand what I say. Is that clear, my beloved brothers and sisters? طيب, let's now move on to the technical meaning of al-fiqh. Al-fiqh has a general meaning. And then it has more of a uh, narrowed down technical meaning. When al-fiqh is mentioned, my beloved brothers and sisters, okay, it is, as Shaykh al-Islam al-Taymi mentions, فَهْمُ مَعَانِ الْأَمْرِ وَالنَّهِي It is to understand the commandments and prohibitions of the legislator. So it's more than just the halal and the haram that we learn in studies like this one. Normally when fiqh is mentioned, what's the first thing that pops to mind? Wudu, salah, fasting, hajj, and so on and so forth. Isn't that so? However, the term fiqh, the way it was used before it became more specific to this science that we are going to be studying today, inshallah ta'ala, it encompassed all of the commandments and prohibitions of the sharia. فَهْمُ مَعَانِ الْأَمْرِ وَالنَّهِي لِيَسْتَبْصِرَ الْإِنسَانُ فِي دِينِهِ so that one may have insight of his deen. It could be in issues of al-aqidah. It could be in issues of al-fiqh. It could be that which the Messenger commanded and instructed. In whatever science it might be. Right? All of these different sciences, they fall under what? Al-fiqh. This is the general meaning of al-fiqh. You then have the more specific, narrowed down, technical meaning of al-fiqh, which is that which we are studying. Which is that which we are studying. And that is, مَعْرِفَةُ الْأَحْكَامِ الشَّرْعِيَّةِ الْعَمَلِيَّةِ الْمُكْتَسَبَةِ مِنْ أَدِلَّتِهَا الْتَفْصِيلِيَةِ The translation of that is, to have knowledge of the rulings, to have knowledge of the rulings of the sharia, Pertaining to the physical action or that which is practical, which has been deduced, which has been deduced 
from the detailed primary evidences like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala he says establish the salah okay we've been commanded to pray you open up the books of fiqh it says that the salah is what it's something that we all must do as Muslims right and then it goes into the ins and the outs of the salat then you have a siyam goes into the ins and the outs of a siyam and al hajj and so on and so forth okay ma'rifatul ahkam al-shar'iyyatil amaliyyatil muktasabah min adillatiha at-tafsiliya i don't want to bore every single one of you guys with technicalities but just bear with me technicalities are always at the beginning and then inshallah ta'ala we will go into the more practical side of things okay The first line of poetry, my beloved brothers and sisters, it reminds us of a particular hadith. Who can give me the hadith? Hadith of Muawiyah radiallahu ta'ala anhu, when the Messenger sallallahu said, Man yuridillahu bi khayran yufaqihu fi din Whoever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants good for, he gives him that fiqh in the religion. He gives him that fiqh in the religion. Ibn Taymi rahmatullahi alayhi, he says, كُلُّ مَنْ أَرَادَ اللَّهُ بِهِ خَيْرًا لَا بُدَّ أَنْ يُفَقِّهُ فِي الدِّينِ He says, every individual that Allah Azza wa Jal wanted good for, he must give him fiqh in the religion. And look what he says. And this is what? The mafhum al-mukhalafah. The contrary meaning of that which has been pronounced. Okay? You have that which is the mantuq, that which you directly take from what the shari' has pronounced. And then you have the contrary meaning of what the shari' has pronounced. You learn that more, inshallah ta'ala, in usul al-fiqh. This is known as mafhum al-mukhalafah. The opposite meaning of it. Whoever Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not want good for, he doesn't give him an understanding in religion. And normally what I tend to mention, my beloved brothers and sisters, the fact that Allah azza wa chose you to sit here, right? Indeed, istafaka. Allah Azza wa Jal has indeed honored you, chosen you from amongst how many Muslims? Millions of Muslims to be able to gain an understanding in your religion. He chose you from amongst all of your family members who may be busy with the dunya, who may be busy with sin. If you look at all of your friends or those who are at similar age and what they get up to throughout the week, hasn't Allah Azza wa Jal blessed you to be sitting in a gathering of knowledge? That should really, really make you feel special. That Allah Azza wa Jal picked you out, or should I say, handpicked you out from all of these human beings who are just chasing none other than Allahu wal-Lahib. Allahu wal-Lahib. Chasing that is what? Huh? Of no benefit. So may Allah Azza wa Jal honor every single one of you for making a sacrifice, especially on a weekday. Right? To attend these classes. And I know people tend to be extremely busy on a weekday. They have work. They have school. But to take time out, even though when you are what? Busy or tired or exhausted, you will, inshallah ta'ala, reap the fruits. And look at it like this, brothers and sisters. In accordance to how much effort you put into something, this is how much of success you will acquire. And this qa'idah, was mentioned by many of the scholars. For example, Ibn Taymiyyah, he says, 
كل عقلاء الأمة علماء وعقلاء أجمع كل عقلاء الأمة All people of intellect have unanimously agreed أن النعيم لا يدرك بالنعيم You will not be able to attain or acquire success with ease Isn't that common sense? It's common sense for anything that you might try to acquire You have to work hard You must put the effort in Even Imam al-Shafi rahmatullahi alayhi says بقدر الكدي تكتسب المعاني ومن طلب العلا سهر الليالي In accordance to how much effort you put into something this is how much of success and loftiness that you will acquire Right Ilm doesn't come easy my beloved brothers and sisters you would have to put the effort in and then you will reap the fruits Now look at this qari this individual has, who has memorized the Quran look how Allah Azza wa Jal honors him do you think it was easy for him now to memorize the Quran? Allah Azza wa chose him to lead the Muslims on the most honorable nights of the year. The last 10 nights, right? It's not the doctor that's leading it. It's not the engineer. It's not the one who is a professional, very well educated academically. It is the one who has memorized the book of Allah Azza wa Look how Allah Azza wa honored him, right? There is no way that you could come out with a loss if one takes out time to learn about what Allah Azza wa told him. Every single one of us was created for one sole purpose. What is that one sole purpose? Allah says, we didn't create the jinn and the ins except for, uh, for worship, right? Probably heard that verse a million times. We cannot fulfill our sole reason of existence except by Studying. Allah created us for that. He didn't create us to become engineers or doctors huh? or mathematicians or teachers. Not that I'm saying there's anything wrong with it. Right? There's no harm taking from the dunya in that which is going to aid and assist you hereafter. And if that which we are chasing of worldly pleasures is conflicting now with our sole reason of existence, we really need to look twice at that. As the Messenger told us, it is mal'oon. Right? It is cursed. Ad-dunya mal'oona. The whole dunya is cursed. Subhanallah. Illa dhikrallah wa ma wala wa aliman aw muta'allima. Except the remembrance of Allah, the one who studies and the one who goes and teaches it. That's what the Messenger told us. Right? And I always mention this, right? If we don't take anything away from seeking knowledge other than the fact that we are able we are able to deal with our problems. When things go wrong, then it would be enough of a benefit. It would be enough of a benefit, right? A number of pharmacists have told me, my beloved brothers and sisters, eight out of ten of eight out of ten customers who walk in, they all ask for antidepressants. Many of them are rich. Many of them are very well educated, right? However, they don't know how to overwhelm, uh, overcome their problems. right? Learning the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you a simple and easy remedy for that. Just requires one to take some time out to study. If you look at all of these very well-known YouTubers, very well-known personalities, huh? They are all suffering. 
They're all suffering, my brothers and my sisters. And it really just boils down them not having a connection with their Creator. And this is exactly what Allah Azza wa Jalla told us in the Quran: "Woman, أعرض عن ذكري فإن له معيشة ضنكة." Right? Whoever turns away from my remembrance, I will give him a depressed life. Also, Allah says, "من عمل صالحا من ذكرنا وأنثى وهو مؤمن فلا نحيينه حياة طيبة." Whoever from the male and female does righteous acts, and from the greatest of righteous acts that one can engage in is to seek knowledge, to learn about His Creator. And Allah Azza wa Jal will solve whatever problems that you are going through. He's a believer. Allah will give him that happy, satisfying life that he's looking for. Why is it that you see very well wealthy individuals who are suffering? But when you look at a broke talib al-ilm who barely has anything, he's so, so satisfied. It reminds me of the statement of I believe it was Ibrahim ibn Adham, one of the great scholars of the past who would be sitting by a river and they would have uh, a dried bread, dipping it into the river and then eating it. They would say to one another, If the kings and their children knew the raha, the contentment and the peace that we experience and feel, they would have indeed fought us for it with their swords. Right? Learning about your religion, it gives you that contentment that money can't buy. So, grant you, uh, so count yourself fortunate that Allah Azza wa chose you to better your relationship with Him before you are buried in the grave. And then he goes on to say, the Shaykh, may Allah Azza wa Jal preserve him. ثُمَّ صَلَاةُ اللَّهِ مَعَ السَّلَامِ عَلَى النَّبِي مُعَلِّمِ الْأَحْكَامِ And then he goes on to send his salat and salam upon the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We say sallallahu alayhi wa sallam quite often, right? Every time the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is mentioned, we should say sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Does anybody know what it means? Except those who attended the class on the weekend from Masjid Imam Nawi. Uh. Does anyone know what a salat means? Aya. Uh. Sending peace. Aya. Okay, anyone else? نعم قال أبو العالية he mentioned ثناء الله على عبده في الملأ الأعلى when we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to send salah upon the messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam okay we are asking him to make good mention of his prophet in the congregation of the angels ثناء الله على عبده في الملأ الأعلى it is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala making good mention of his prophet in the congregation or in the assembly of his angels. And then as-salam. Does anybody know? It means to protect the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in Jami' al-Afati wa Shurur from all types of evils and harms. Taib, you may ask the question now. 
Messenger has passed away. The incident is very well known. It's in Sahih Bukhari. Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala and he stood on the member and he said, Man kana ya'budu Muhammadan fa'ina Muhammadan qadmat. Whoever used to worship Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, indeed he has passed away. Waman kana ya'budu Allah fa'ina Allah hayyun la yamut. Whoever used to worship Allah, then indeed Allah azza wa jal lives and does not die. What harm is it that the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam needs to be protected from? Huh? Even those from Muslim Amnawi. It says slander. Anyone else? Those who curse him, right? Do we not find in every time and era those who are trying to make the Messenger look like a barbaric, bloodthirsty individuals? Do we not find that? They're always trying to tarnish his image. Okay? However, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always sends those who defend his deen. Are you with me, my brothers and my sisters? Right? It is protected by the guardians of the sharia with the ilm that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed them with. No. He says, Ala nabi mu'allim al so a salat of Allah Azza wa Jal and the salam upon the Nabi who is the Mu'allim al-Ahkam who is the teacher of all rulings, right? When we study al-fiqh, my beloved brothers and sisters, right? what are we trying to acquire or what are we trying to attain? We are trying to understand the commandments, the prohibitions, the instructions of the legislator that which Allah Azza wa Jal mentioned to us in the Quran and the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam who came to teach us what is mentioned in the Quran. Indeed, we have sent down the Quran upon you so that you can make it clear, you can clarify that which Allah Azza wa Jalla has sent down for the people. Right? Here, the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is there to teach us that which Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala intends with his sayings and statements. Right? So he is the Mu'allim al and with al-fiqh, my beloved brothers and sisters, when we are studying a particular madhab, the objective is what? To become a madhabist? To become a fanatic of any madhab? La. As the poet mentions, وَتَجْعَلِ الْمُتُونَ لِلْتَفْقِيهِ وَسِيلَةً لِرُتْبَةِ الْفَقِيهِ These madhab are like what? A wasila. It's a means to reach a bigger objective. That level of the faqih, when you reach that, you are able to understand the speech of the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and what he really intended when he commanded, instructed, when he prohibited and so on and so forth when he explained to us what Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala came with and then he says وَبَعْدُ هَذَا النَّظْمُ وَهُوَ الْأَصْغَرُ فِي سَهْلٌ وَاضِحٌ مُيَسَّرُ وَبَعْدُ he says which means to proceed okay when you move on from one topic to another you can say what? وَبَعْد this is why we hear the Imam or the Khatib on Friday after Khutbatul Haji. What did he say? Wabad. Then he goes into the topic at hand. He says, "Hadha nadmu wa al azgar." It is the most concise and shortest of poems that you will come across in fiqh, which is very true. It's a thirty-two line poetry, which covers that which uh, most, or should I say, just about everybody here, okay, is in need of. Fil fiqh, he says, "Sahlun, wadhihun muyassar." It's very easy to understand. It's very, very clear. 
and concise. And then he says, فَحْفَظْهُ يَا بُنَيَّ وَحْفَظِهِ The Shaykh initially authored this manduma for his children. Right? He initially authored this poem for who? For his children. Right? It's something that young children today memorize. Right? Which can also be memorized by elders. Ilm doesn't have an age. It's from the cradle to the grave. Are you brothers and sisters with me? The companions of the Prophet ﷺ, they embraced Al-Islam at a very late age. And even at a very late age, they were learning the basics. All the way up until they became scholars of the deen. Okay? The Shaykh here, he encourages youngsters to memorize this poem. If you want that which is a little bit more deeper than that, then maybe memorize the 50-line poetry that I went through on the weekend. In Masjid Al-Imam Al-Nawi, Rahmatullahi Ali. It's a 50-line poetry. It also covers topics such as ghusl, right? Buying and selling, zakat, little bit of nikah, hajj, and other masail as well. So it's more what? Huh? It's more deeper than that which we are studying now. As for this one, it's 32 lines. So everything that we're going to be covering here is also covered there. But the Sheikh adds on to it. So he says, فَحْفَظْهُ يَا بُنَيَّ وَحْفَظِيهِ بُنَيَّتِي وَالْتَفْهَمَ مَا فِيهِ He says, memorize this my son and my daughter. وَالْتَفْهَمَ مَا فِيهِ And try to understand that which uh, is found in his poem. Put your hand up, my beloved brothers and sisters, if you want to become a serious student of knowledge. You may be just here to uh, take the basics and then to start, uh, or should I say, you just you know get on with your life, which... You know, labas, no problem. But put your hand up, you're, becoming, you're trying to become a serious student of knowledge. Which is most of you. You see, Muhammad is shaking his hand because he's becoming a pharmacist, mashallah, or a doctor. Uh, he's both, inshallah ta'ala. He'll try to become a doctor and also uh, a serious student of knowledge. طيب. And I suggest that everybody writes this down. Our Sheikh Saleh ibn Abdulaziz al-Sindi, who I believe came here to the college as well, right? It says, if you want to become a serious student of knowledge, you must combine between three things. Number one, it has to be a fair share of knowledge that you memorize. Number two, you have to do a fair share of reading. And number three, and by the way, this is not in any particular order, right? There has to be a fair share of classes that you attend, knowledge that you take directly from the scholars. So the gatherings of the scholars. If you can't get directly to a scholar, then you take knowledge from those who took from the scholars, and so on and so forth. Our Sheikh Salih ibn Abdullah ibn Hamd al-Usaymi, he said, لا بد من حفظ. It is a must that you memorize. ومن ظن أنه ينال العلم بلا حفظ فإنه يطلب محالة. Whoever thinks that he's going to acquire knowledge without memorizing, this person is chasing the impossible. So there has to be a fair share of memorization. And it makes life so much more easier as well. If you just think about it from a logical perspective, right? Does anyone here have photographic memory? Now, as soon as you look at something, you memorize it. A little bit like Al-Imam Shafi, rahmatullahi alayhi. 
If he had a book, he would need to cover one side just so the other side doesn't interfere with the first. That's how sharp his memorization was. Hi, my beloved brothers and sisters. What do you guys think? Does anyone here have photographic memory? What happens when you read something? Most people, are they able to remember that? You just read it once. Can you fully remember everything on there? You might remember snippets here and there, but then you'll end up forgetting everything, right? If you don't revise it. Now the person who keeps on repeating and repeating and repeating. Right? That's more likely to stick than one just reading something the first time or the second time, right? Um, so if you want the information to stick, it only makes sense that you repeat it so many times. That's exactly what memorization is. Huh? Repeti repetition, which then sticks. And it takes longer to forget. It takes longer to forget. And that which is also extremely important is comprehension. We don't just memorize, memorize, memorize and become like parrots. Right? And sometimes just memorizing without understanding may lead you what? To destruction. Like what happened to many of those who are extremely passionate about the jihad and so on and so forth. They memorize certain hadith and they memorize Nawaqidul Islam. I'm sure you guys are familiar with Nawaqidul Islam, right? The 10 acts that nullifies your Islam. Without understanding, Right? They started declaring so many to be so many to be what kuffar. Throwing around takfir like you're giving out sweets. Huh? And that is because he hadn't understood the masail, the ins and the outs of these ten nullifiers, which requires an extensive explanation. I remember when our teacher, Sheikh Abdul Hamid al Zakri in Dammaj in Al Yemen, taught us Nawaqil Islam and Sheikh Suleiman Rahili on the exact same thing as well in the Prophet's masjid. Right? They went through the preventatives of takfir and the conditions of takfir, which lasted maybe more than an hour and a half, maybe a whole lesson or two. Just so this young, passionate student of knowledge doesn't run with these nawaqid huh? and then starts making takfir of the people unjustly which is the beginning of him now joining some of these extreme groups abroad. You brothers and sisters with me. So comprehension is very, very important. The poet, he says, إِذَا لَمْ تَكُنْ حَافِظًا فَجَمْعُكَ لِلْكُتُبِ لَا يَنْفَعُ If you're not someone with hifd and comprehension, you just gathering books, right, will not be a benefit for you. And then he says, أَتَحْضُرُ بِالْجَهْلِ فِي مَجِسٍ وَعِلْمُكَ فِي الْبَيْتِ مُسْتَوْدَعُ you're going to come to a sitting with ignorance, right? While your books are stored in the closet uh, or in the warehouse. Yeah, you come with that which you memorized, which you acted upon, and acting upon the knowledge allows you now to solidify that you that which you have memorized. Babu Taharati wa Faslun Filwudu fihi shurutu thumma yufteradu. النية العقل مع الإسلام ماء طهور من سوى الحرام إزالة المانع من وصوله وهكذا الخارج من سبيله والفرض غسل الوجه واليدين مسح لرأس غسلك الرجلين 
والفم والأنف من الوجه جعلا والأذن من رأسك ترتيب هلا الشيخ بن دوزون دسي باب الطهارة The chapter of الطهارة الطهارة linguistically my beloved brothers and sisters it means النظافة والنزاهة عن الأقدار cleanliness from impurities as for a technical meaning and this is what concerns us here ارتفاع الحدث وما في معناه وزوال الخبث okay to uplift the spiritual impurities to uplift the spiritual impurities okay and to remove any visible physical impurities let's stand over each one inshallah ta'ala for a moment we hear this term being thrown around all the time what does Raf'ul Hadith mean? Or what does Hadith mean? Here we translate it as uplifting the spiritual impurities. And this is of two types. Minor spiritual impurity and major spiritual impurity. Brothers and sisters, what I really want you guys to walk away with, inshallah ta'ala, is the examples that I give and how I subdivide some of the Messiah or how I put it into compartments. This will really, really help you when you teach or when you explain it, whether it is you explaining it to yourself or explaining it to others. Some of you guys may have studied fiqh. However, it may not necessarily be in how we are dividing, okay, or maybe putting it in these uh, different categories. Okay. And I'm giving you guys what the mashayikh have taught us in the haramain. Okay. So you have minor spiritual impurities, major spiritual impurities. What does Hadathun Asghar mean or Hadathun Akbar? An individual now pays a visit to the lavatory. Everybody knows what a lavatory is. It's a nice way of saying the toilet. He relieves himself. Okay? After urinating or after excreting, right? He washes himself. He does his stinjap. From that point, all the way up until he makes wudu. What is the state that this individual now is in? Minor spiritual impurity. Okay. Are there any visible physical impurities? There aren't any. Is that clear, brothers and sisters? It's a spiritual form of impurity. So all the way up until he makes wudu, we would say this individual... Okay, has the trait Hadathun Asghar. Is that clear? Taib. An individual now has sexual intercourse. He's paid a visit to the bathroom. He's washed his private area. Is there any visible physical impurities? There aren't any. From that point all the way up until he takes a ghusl bath or a purificatory bath. How would we describe him? Someone who has major spiritual impurity. Can you, can you see it visible? No, you can't. This is what is meant by hadathun akbar. This is what is meant by hadathun akbar or al-hadathul akbar. Taiban individual now farts. Can you see or passes air? Can you see the physical impurities? Is it visible? 
No, it's not. Right? All the way up until he makes wudu, we say this individual has hadathun azgar or hadathun akbar. Major or minor? Minor, excellent. Tayyip. And then you have the second part of the ta'rif, which is what? Wazawalul khabath. To remove any visible physical impurities. To remove any visible physical impurities. And that could be on your clothes, it could be on your uh, on your body, right? That you would need to remove because it's what? An impurity that must be cleaned. He then says وفصلن. Fasal which is the Singular term for fusul Is a term that is used Okay When subdividing The different Chapters that fall under At-Tahara for example So you have At-Tahara which is extremely broad Right And so many different topics Fall under At-Tahara Like wudu what else? Ghusul, what else? Tayammum, what else? Al-Hayyad, chapter of menses. So you would say, you would see Fasl, which is now what? A sub-chapter of the more broader chapter, which is what? Al-Tahara. Al-Wudu, huwa isti'amalu ma'in tahurin fil-a'dha'i al-arba'ati ala sifatin makhsusa. Don't worry, brothers and sisters, if you don't understand or you don't get these technicalities, don't worry about it. It is to use a type of water that is tahur. We'll go into waters, inshallah ta'ala, in a short while. It is to use a water that is known as a tahur on four body parts in a specific manner. In a specific manner. The wudu that we carry out, that's exactly what we're referring to here. He says, فِيهِ الشُّرُوطُ ثُمَّ مَا يُفْتَرَضُ Okay? The wudu has shurut. He has conditions. And he also has that which is fard. If you want to maybe put it as a pillar, that's absolutely fine as well. If you want to translate a fard as a pillar, that's absolutely fine. I promise you guys, inshallah, this will be the last technicality before we go into the more practical side of things. Okay? It says, fee shurut. There are conditions. Who can tell me what a condition is? That which is needed before the act of worship. Does anyone have the definition in Usul Fiqh of a shart? Hands dropped, huh? Taib. Taib. Okay. Who remembers the translation? You not coming with the condition necessitates that you did not come with that which you did the condition for. I'll say that again. You not coming with the condition necessitates that you also didn't come with that which you did the condition for. Don't worry, guys. It took me a very long time to translate this into English. You do wudu because it's a condition for what? Salah. 
What happens when you don't come with the condition here? Did you come with that which you did the condition for? Or what you would do the condition for? A salah? Is your salah valid? No, it's not. And the fact now that you came with this condition, does that necessitate that you came with that which you did the condition for? Meaning, you came with wudu because you want to pray. Okay? Does that now necessitate or does that now mean or does that now render your salah to also be valid? Meaning, I'll just rephrase that, right? The fact that you came with the condition, does that also necessitate that you came with that which they, you would do the condition for, which is a salah? I might wake wudu, but does that mean I came with a salah? That's more of the technical side of things, okay? A shurut is a prerequisite, that which must come before the act of worship, okay? And you're not excused in any circumstance for leaving off. Whether it is left off out of ignorance or forgetfulness, you can't just say, oh, I forgot the tahara. Allah is ghafoor rahim. Allah is oft forgiving and merciful. Or you use the verse, رَبَّنَا لَا تُؤَخِذْنَا إِنَّ Oh Allah, don't hold us to account for that which we've done out of forgetfulness or out of mistake. مَا رَأَيْكُمْ And you just get on with your life as nothing happened. You remember that after the salah that you didn't come with the wudu. لا, you have to go back and come with it. Any of the conditions that one leaves off, okay, whether it is accidental Okay, or done out of ignorance, someone might remind you and say, oh, you should have done that. Oh, I didn't know. You have to go back. Is that clear? And then you have that which is fard. Here he goes on to say, ثُمَّ مَا يُفْتَرَضُ That which is fard. What's the difference between a condition and fard? Or a pillar, a condition and pillar? It's an essential part of the act of worship. It is inside of the act of worship in more simple terms. Now washing the face, which is from the six pillars of wudu. Does that come before the act of worship or it's within the act of worship of wudu? The act of worship here is wudu. Is there a prerequisite that which you have to do before starting the wudu? Or is it something that you have to do within the wudu? Within the wudu. That's the difference between the two. And the common feature bet between the condition and also the fard is that you are not excused for having left it off. You will still have to come with it. طيب. Now he goes on to uh, the conditions of the wudu. And here the shaykh, may Allah Azza wa Jal preserve him, mentions seven of them. The first condition that he mentions is a niyyah, the intention. Okay, the intention, my beloved brothers and sisters, is in the heart. Okay, the passing thought through one's heart is sufficient. We don't need to overly complicate the issue of intentions. Are you brothers and sisters with me? You don't need to utter it uh, a number of times before you start the act of worship. That only leads to waswas. That only leads to waswas, the whispers of the devil. Okay, and this is a sickness that some 
may be afflicted with and may Allah Azza wa cure the Muslims. One is doubting and hesitating. Did I do the intention? Did I not? He wakes up maybe half an hour before Fajr and he doesn't leave the bathroom except after sunrise. The intention is very, very simple. Right? It's a passing thought through one's heart. Right? You don't need to utter it. Its place is the heart. Its place is the heart. Okay? And we know the famous hadith of the Prophet Right? Actions are judged by intentions. Okay? Let me ask you guys a question. If an individual now jumps into the swimming pool, and then after coming out, he says, oh, subhanAllah, it's Zuhr time. And yes, I washed the four body parts, right? Remember the ta'rif of wudu. Right? To use a type of water that is known as al-tahur on four body parts. What are four body parts? Face, hands, right? Up to the elbows, the elbows included. The head and also the feet up to the ankles, the ankles included. Which is pretty obvious, right? Jumped out of the swimming pool. Oh, it's Dhuhr time. You know what? Let me pray. Because I washed. I washed all of these four body parts. Ma'ara'ikum. Is that wudu valid? But didn't he wash all of the four body parts though? That he didn't have the intention. And that's why the latter part of the definition was ala wajhin makhsus. It has to be done in a specific way. Right? It has to be done in a specific way. However, if he made the intention before jumping into the swimming pool that he wants to remove the spiritual impurity, huh? and then he came out and then wanted to pray, would he be able to pray like that? As long as he fulfilled other aspects which we will come into inshallah ta'ala later on. Another example. In Al-Madinah, when it rains, it pours. It really, really does. And you become soaked Right? And you're not wearing shoes. Normally we don't walk around with shoes. You're wearing sandals. And it's pouring. Right? Really, really hard. That water will reach all of these four body parts. Maraikum. It's also valid. He would have to make the intention first, right? And he would have to meet. Uh, certain other conditions as well which we will come into inshallah ta'ala later on because they pour so much that it actually flows on your uh, on your body it actually goes through your skin uh, goes through your clothes that's how wet it becomes طيب. so al-niyatu okay al-aqlu ma'al-islami before I move on to the second condition my beloved brothers and sisters Right? As I mentioned earlier, the issue of intention is very, very simple. Right? You don't need to overly complicate it. It's a passing thought through one's heart and then khalas. If an individual now is suffering from waswasa, what do we advise him with? The scholars, they mention this principle which I suggest everybody writes down. You know how we double check That we've done something right We have to ensure that we've done something properly The one who's suffering from waswasa 
doesn't need to double check or he doesn't need to ensure that he's done it properly. If it means pulling him out of the toilet, okay, then we should do so. And this is what we advise him with. Make the intention, do it, khalas, get out. Is that clear? Like what if an individual now is doubting as to whether he done the intention or not after having finished the wudu? If you are doubting as you are doing the act of worship, it may be safer to restart again, providing that you're not someone who's suffering from waswasa. Is that clear? However, shaitan is whispering, after you finish the wudu, did you do it, did you not? You most likely didn't do it. Sheikh Ibn Uthimi has a line of poetry in his manzuma, in his poem, that covers usooli principles. He says, for example, the doubts that an individual has after doing the act of worship, this doesn't affect it whatsoever. And likewise, if someone is suffering from a lot of waswasa, is that clear? So in a nutshell, when you start your wudu, the intention should be right to remove the spiritual impurity or making wudu for that which is wajib upon you to do the wudu for like a tawaf or a salat, touching the mushaf and so on and so forth. All that which is sunnah. Okay? You want to pray two raka'at duha. This is a sunnah act, right? You made wudu for this particular act of worship. Can I now also with this wudu pray? My obligatory prayers? It's perfectly fine. See, the issue of niyyah is very sahal, brothers, sisters. It doesn't require overcomplication. I remember I said this, you guys know Ustad Yaseen, right? He's a Shafi'i. If there's one madhab that causes you to have waswasa, it's a Shafi'i madhab. Because of how deep they go into the issues of intentions, which is not needed, right? The Prophet didn't utter it. The companions didn't utter it. The Tabi'een didn't utter it. It wasn't known that uh, uttering the intention was attributed to them. Even the four great Imams of Fiqh, even Imam Shafi'i himself didn't utter it. And this is what Al-Bayhaqi rahmatullahi alayhi mentioned about all of these scholars. Who is a Shafi'i himself? So the matter is Sahal brothers, sisters. Five more minutes then we'll stop inshallah ta'ala, okay? Number two, Al-Aqlu. Sanity. Okay? Sanity is a condition in order for the wudu to be valid. The Messenger وسلم, said the pen has been raised from three types of people. One of them is uh, the majnoon, the one who's lost his sanity until he gains his, um, his sanity. Number three, Ma'al Islami, a Muslim. If someone who doesn't have an Islam makes wudu, is it valid? No. Right? All of their good deeds will be what? Void. When they come on Yom Al Qiyam, as Allah says, It will be like scattered particles. It will not be accepted from them. وَمَنْ يَبْتَغْ غَيْرَ الْإِسْلَامِ دِينًا فَلَنْ يُقْبَلَ مِنْ As Allah says, whoever desires other than Islam, it will be 
rejected from him. Tayyib. Tayyib. When Allah Azza wa Jal, He commands in the Quran that one carries out the wudu, the ablution. Are the kuffar being addressed here as well? This is an issue that is discussed in Usul al-Fiqh. When Allah Azza wa Jal gives out instructions, are the kuffar being addressed as well? They are being addressed, which is the more favorable, stronger view. However, if they did come with it, it won't be accepted from them. And on Yawm Al-Qiyamah, al they will be punished for every salah that they missed, and every time that they needed to make wudu that they didn't, and every time they met the conditions of zakat which they didn't pay, they will be punished for everything that they left off, right? On top of, or in addition to, them being punished for their kufr, the disbelief. And that just shows shiddah to adabi al-kufar, a severity in uh, how they will be tormented. Yeah. The fourth condition, ma'un tahurun min siwal harami. Fourth condition is that the water needs to be tahur. The water needs to be tahur. The water, my beloved brothers and sisters, is categorized into three. It is categorized into three. The first type is a type of water that is tahur. You may want to write this down. That which Allah Azza wa Jal sent down, which remained in its original form. The water that comes down, that drops onto the earth. Is that tahur, brothers and sisters? Is it something that I can use? Of course it is. It is pure in within itself and it's also a purifier. It's pure in within itself. This is the attribute of this type of water. It is pure in within itself and it's also a purifier. And this is the only type of water that you could use to remove the spiritual impurities and also the physical impurities before you can be in a state that you can start your wudu. Is that clear? You may ask yourself the question, how is this really relevant to us? We are living in the 21st century. We have water flowing through the pipes. How do you think they're making wudu in Ukraine at the moment? With all these bombs that are flying around that are hitting the central water system. Do you think water is coming through the pipes now? It may well be that they have to find water which they store in barrels. And we may well find ourselves in that kind of situation. Is it far-fetched, brothers and sisters, if it's happening around the corner for us to be in that kind of situation? We may well have to go back to the ahkam related to water that we might not necessarily see in today's day and age because of the luxuries that we have. If you are now storing Water in barrels, okay? This water now has remained in its original form, which is what? Tahur. Pure in within itself and also a purifier. Because of it now coming in contact with a particular substance, it may well be that you can't make wudu with that particular water. So this is why, brothers and sisters, don't take these masan that we're studying lightly. Right? This is how we made wudu in places like Yemen. Your brother, Abu Taymiyyah, for full four years, he would take water out of a bucket. 
and take a shower from a bucket. Because we did not have running water on a permanent basis. The water would run through the pipes once every two days and sometimes once every three days. We'd be storing it. And sometimes the water wouldn't come for weeks. So we'd have to go to the masjid, pick it up in tanks. Tayyip. So this is the only type of water that you could use to remove the spiritual impurities and the visible physical impurities in order for you to be able to start your wudu. The second category of water is that which is referred to as tahir. How does it move from being tahur to tahir? And come on. Here on you. Okay, but what causes the change? Something else is a very, very vague term. Okay, what other substance? I'm looking for more detail. Uh, go on. Taib, you gave me an example now. I need... Huh? Jamil, that's the term that I was looking for. The poet says, If this water now comes in contact with a pure substance, pure substance, that's the key word, which causes one of three things to change. What are the three things? Smell, taste, and color. The way I remember is, okay, by using the abbreviations of an internet company in Saudi Arabia. You know, you have EE here in Vodafone. There's a very well-known internet company there called STC. Smell, taste, and color. That's how I remember. And it may well be that the waters that we're going to be storing in buckets a couple of years down the line, maybe, and may Allah Azza protect us from that. Messenger Sallallahu told us that. Don't wish to meet the enemy. However, we have to be real, right? With Putin... And threatening the West now, especially the UK, Boris Johnson, with nuclear weapons. Allahu A'lam what will happen in due course. Isn't that so? If these waters that you're storing in buckets now comes in contact with a pure substance, which causes one of three things to change. Can I use that? I'll give you guys an example, right? You happen to be in the toilet and you have a LucasAid drink in a bottle. You know what? It's a bit long, stretching. Let me just use the Lucasid bottle now for Istinja to clean myself. Maraikum. Or Pepsi. Or Dr. Pepper. Coca Cola. You're using it to clean yourself. Can you? But you're going to be physically removing any visible physical impurities, right? After doing so, can I then stand up to the sink and start making wudu? Even though there's no visible physical impurities? You may have removed, right, the visible physical impurities. However, you are still not in the state now in which you can now do the wudu. You would have to use a water that is what? Tahur. That which is pure in with itself and a purifier. That which has remained in its original form. Likewise, tea. Get a tea bag. Ah. And you mix it now with water. 
Is it tea bag? Is it is it is it is it tahir? Is it pure? Mom, when I asked this question to the brothers in Mizzi, Mom, no, everyone looked at me confused. When was the tea bag ever nijis? When was it ever impure? It's a pure substance, huh? right? Or you take now, uh, you know the uh, the fruit powder, squash, huh? powder, right? And then you mix it now with water. Is that powder pure? It's pure, right? It came now in contact with a water that is tahur. And it caused one of three things to change. And it doesn't have to be all three of them, by the way. One is enough. This water is now rendered tahir. Can I use it to remove any spiritual or physical impurities? No. Can I use it for anything else? Yes, I can. Yes, you can. Is that clear? What about the uh, the water on the beach that has now become mixed with soil and sand? And is it pure? Can I use it? No, but it might be very like sandy water. If you take a little bit out and you start making wudu from it, sandy. Jamil, excellent. And also because the sand is one of the two purifiers. Isn't it so? So this has been exempt. This has been exempt. And there are other scenarios that might be exempt which we're not going to find time for. You will take it inshallah ta'ala when you go deeper in fiqh. The third category is a type of water that is najis. Impure. And this is split into two. It can be divided into two. That which is more than qullatain and that which is less than qullatain. If you translate qullatain now into English, it means two barrels. However, you were to now estimate it into numbers, how many liters would that be? Qullatain? 250. Huh. There's a lot of kalam amongst scholars with regards to what this estimation actually is. We will go with what Sheikh Amir Bahjat, the author of this kitab, mentioned in some lines of poetry when he said, وَالْقُلَّتَانِ بَعْدَ تِسْعِينَ مِئَةً لِتْرٍ وَكَيْلٍ مِنْ مِيَاهٍ بَارِئَةً 190 liters. Depending on what view that you go with, okay, doesn't necessarily matter. I want you guys to understand. First category is that which is less than 190 liters. The second category is that which is more than 190 liters. And we are speaking about that which has now become impure, a type of water that you are not allowed to use. It's haram for you to use. You would have to pour it down the drain. So that which is less than 190 liters, if it comes in contact with an impurity, just mujarrad mulaqat, a mere contact with it, it would be considered impure. You can't use it. Even if it's one drop of urine, one drop of urine comes in contact now with that water that is less than 190 liters, this would now be rendered impure. If it's now more than 190 liters, this water would be rendered. We would have to check if one of the three things has changed. The smell, taste, and color. That's if it's more than 190 liters. Did everybody get that? Like the swimming pool. Huh? You'll always find 
that guy who starts urinating in the corner of the pool, or he starts defecating in the corner of the pool, right? Is the swimming pool more than 190 liters? Most likely it is, right? Um, and that wouldn't actually affect the purity of this water because it's more than 190 liters, only if the smell or the taste and the color changes. Is that clear? They're moving on swiftly, inshallah ta'ala. The fourth condition was ma'un tahurun. The water has to be what? Tahur. And a pure in within itself and also a purifier. Min wal harami. The fifth condition is that it can't be haram for you to use this water. In other terms, they mention in their books, it has to be permissible for you to use. It has to be permissible for you to use. Okay. So what we're referring to here is that water that you're using cannot be stolen or the money that you use to buy this water can't be stolen. Is that clear, brothers and sisters? Or in more uh, general terms, it has to be permissible for you to use. For example, when you go to Saudi Arabia, right? On some of these uh, water taps, you find it is only for drinking. Would this go against the condition that we've just mentioned? If they say that this is only for drinking water and now you're using it for, someone, for something else, can you use that kind of water to do although? You're misusing it. You're using it for other than that which it is meant for, right? The examples that I normally tend to bring as well is imagine you have an auntie mashallah practicing lady she goes to the masjid and everything however she frauds the government she claims that she has or should I say she's single she claims to be single just so she can uh, have a higher income from the government. And she uses this haram money to pay her water bill. What do you guys think? Sorry? Now for the auntie. This auntie now, right, who defrauds the government. And her money is now haram, right? She claims that she's single in reality. The guy comes through the, the window every night. Right? She's married. The base on that which we are studying, would her wudu be valid? She's using this haram money now for the, to, to pay the water bill. And if she doesn't pay, they're going to cut the water off. Would her wudu be valid? According to this, it wouldn't. if I go to a house like somebody asked us yesterday I think it requires yani, deeper look into this right because uh, I remember one time researching a point where one says my dad's money is haram and he pays for all the food and everything and he pays for the rent am I held responsible for that am I sinful now to remain in his house I came across some fatawa saying that you're not sinful for it However, if you're able to leave this house 
and kind of like start your own life that is blessed inshallah ta'ala with the wealth that you earn then do so but until then this is not something that you are uh, held responsible for right so based on this view here it's one of the views that are out there okay uh, it's not the view of every fiqh scholar right but it's a view out there and they have the reasonings for it like that which is built on falsehood it also becomes what false yani invalid you promise this is with me and this masala of hal nahi yaqtadi al fasad wa inna at-tahrim fi nafs al amal wa sharthi fa dhu fasad wa khalal we're going to any technicalities but this is a view that is out there and they have a point okay a similar point uh, that stems off from this principle is praying in a house that is stolen or that has been bought with haram money mm. it's an issue that is discussed which we'll leave inshallah ta'ala for another time so the fifth condition as the Hanabila mentioned that this water has to be lawful for you to use it can't be haram whether it is you using the money to buy this water or whether it has been stolen okay or being used for other than what it is there for طيب number six إزالة المانع من وصوله وهكذا الخارج من سبيله number six is you have to make sure that you remove anything that prevents the water from reaching that which needs to be washed okay and the ضابط the general principle that I will give in this situation is that which puts a layer on top of that which needs to be washed knowing this principle will allow you to determine what needs to be removed and what doesn't a commonly asked question just the other day when I was in Masjid Quba Lester, a brother asked me I have paint I'm a painter and when the time of Salah kicks in it takes a very long time to remove the paint صح? is anyone here a painter has done some painting in the in the past Um, how long does it normally take? Okay, the adhan has gone off. And you're in the toilet trying to remove it. it. Takes a very long time. Is there a way around this? There's no way around it? We say to you, wear gloves. It goes with me. You wear gloves. It's as simple as that. Is the gloves now, or are the gloves going to hinder your, your progress in painting or whatever you're trying to execute? It really doesn't. Wear the gloves, okay? As this will save you from a lot of headache. However, if this is now a layer on top of the skin, you would have to make sure that it's removed completely. Hey, what about makeup? We've seen sisters in the past, and may Allah has to reward them for their good intentions and their hirs, their eagerness to pray even when at work. And that's something that, is, that should be commended. However, she's wearing a full mask. Right? And when she does wudu, she does this. Right? This isn't this isn't ghassal, this is not washing. Inshallah later on we'll speak about the difference between washing and also wiping. You would have to make sure that you remove, and this is remember a condition, a prerequisite for the wudu. You will have to remove it before you start the wudu. I'm going to come on to that, don't worry. Yeah? So he mentioned 
the way to determine is that it puts a layer on top of the skin. And does the makeup do that? Does the lipstick do that? And by the way, wearing makeup around women and around your husband is not something that's haram. She can beautify herself as much as she wants. However, wearing it in front of non-maharim is where the problem lies. Okay? Especially if the time of Salah kicks in, you would have to ensure that you remove the layer on top of that which needs to be washed. Likewise, when it comes to these eyelashes. Okay? And also what? Nail varnish. It has to be removed. Yesterday I was discussing it in the class, or was it the day before? We made mention of these waterproof uh, nail varnish. And I heard it was tested by some of the brothers and they demonstrated it on YouTube. And in essence, it isn't actually waterproof. And the only reason why they say waterproof is because they want to pull the Muslims in. Ala kulli hal is something that needs to be ex experimented. Point is, if it puts a layer on top of the skin, it would need to be removed. Tayyib. Another example that I normally tend to mention is that which relates to hina or henna. Huh? What do you guys think? There are two stages to henna or the henna that a woman puts on. The stage when the mom's walking around like this, Muhammad get me this, Muhammad get me that. Huh? Waiting for the henna now to dry up. And then after it's now become dry. So all the way up until it becomes dry, right? Is this a layer on top of the skin or not? It's a layer on top of the skin. After it becomes dry. Huh? Is it okay now for her to make wudu? Because it has now sunk into the skin. Guess with me. What about Vaseline and cream? Nivea. Or Dove. It sinks into the skin, right? Except in one scenario, right? Right? If one slaps the cream on top of his skin. Huh? Or the Vaseline, should I say? It actually ends up putting a layer on top of the skin. Right? In that case, you would have to ensure that it's removed. Sometimes you get burnt and you put a large amount of Vaseline on top of the scab. Right? You can see it's a large amount. It's very thick. As opposed to the one that you, huh? How do you say this in English again? That you rub into the skin, which then sinks in. Are you guys with me? Did everybody note down the examples? These examples make the lesson interesting. At least Kadalik. As opposed to me just saying, uh, removing any layer on top of the skin, moving on to the next one. With the examples, it makes it clear that which is being said, makes it more easily understood. Likewise, when you're explaining to somebody, right, comes in extremely, extremely handy. And likewise, face pain. Huh? That one may ask now, is a woman excused when she goes on a wedding? She arrives at the wedding maybe at Asr time. And what time does she normally finish? After midnight. Isn't it so? And she's wearing makeup. She's maybe spent over 50 pounds, maybe even more than that, on her makeup. She came to dress to impress. Sah? 
Is she excused in this kind of scenario? The one marrying and the one attending the marriage or the wedding, they're both not excused. At all. I remember, subhanAllah, my mom told me this story. And I mentioned this the other day as well. Of a sister who was being pressurized. The sister was, was getting married, right? She was being pressurized to remove her makeup that she spends hundreds of pounds on. Time is salah kicked in. And every salah has its time, right? Can I decide to pray asr at isha or after midnight? La. Salata kanat al-mu'minin kitab al-mawquta. They pressurized her, they pressure, and she refused. And I think also uh, her mother threatened to walk out. Something along the lines of that. But she took all her makeup off because she wants to pray. She's a righteous woman. She has an obligation. She ended up passing away in her sujood. Imagine if she delayed it. Right? We beg Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for a righteous spouse, sah? That wasn't a dua, by the way, but may Allah azza wa jalla grant you all righteous spouses here. Right? You beg Allah Azza wa Jal day and night, Ya Allah, grant me a righteous spouse. Right? Day and night, you beg Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, grant me excellent results. There's a verse in the Quran where Allah Azza wa Jalla says, You disobeyed Allah Azza wa Jal after He showed you that which you really wanted. This verse came down when. The participants of Uhud, those who the Messenger placed on top of that mountain, Jabal Rumad, the 50, that the Messenger placed under the responsibility, I believe, is Abdullah ibn Jubair. Right? And he told them, don't come off the mountain. No matter what happens, even if you see the war booty, don't come off. No matter what's happening, don't come off this mountain. As soon as they saw the war booty, they started saying, Al Ghanima, Al Ghanima. خلاص, the battle's finished. They were instructed, don't come off. Allah said, You disobeyed Allah after He showed you what you really wanted. So you've been asking Allah for so long, Ya Allah, grant me a righteous spouse. And then on the day that you are granted that, you disobey Allah. You miss the salawat, you free mix, you blast music. How ungrateful is that, brothers and sisters? How ungrateful is that? For years you're asking, Ya Allah, allow me to come out with a first at university. The day you pass or the day you get your degree, you throw a bash, a party, where you invite everybody over and you're disobeying Allah. How ungrateful is that? Look at what Allah granted you, but then just threw it back in at him. Number seven is putting an end to the najasa or removing the najasa before you start the wudu. Can you be urinating and making wudu at the same time because you're in a rush? You woke up 15 minutes before your work. Huh? The sink is right next to the toilet seat. You are urinating 
are doing whatever you need to do and you're doing wudu at the same time because you're trying to save time. What do you guys think? Your juice? This is exactly what his point is speaking about. You can't be urinating or the najasa, the impurities, huh? can't be continuously coming out of your body while at the same time you're making wudu. Okay? So you have to firstly make sure that you do istinja after having urinated or defecated or whatever else you relieved yourself of in the toilet. Because it's not just one number one and number two. There's many types. Huh? You have to make sure you clean yourself. You have to do istinja. Istinja, which means to wash yourself. Or use stones to clean yourself. You can either do istinja or istijmar. Or you can combine between them. And if one just used stones to clean himself, and in today's day and age they use mindil, tissue instead of stones, would that be sufficient? By ijma' by unanimous agreement, even if you didn't use water. I know this is a shand upon, right? No. Point of the matter is, you have to make sure that you wash yourself before you make wudu. Or the other scenario is, you have to make sure that the najasa, the impurities, aren't coming out while you're doing the wudu. Right? After. Exactly, brothers and sisters. And alhamdulillah for istinja'ah. Islam is a hygienic religion. Would you guys agree with that? Well, I mean, just think about how disgusting the lifestyle of some of the non-Muslim is. Right? And how Allah Azza wa blessed us with cleaning ourselves. The guy walks in into one of these British toilets. He urinates standing up, goes home, doesn't wash himself, right? I don't even know who actually thought of that. That you don't wash yourself, you don't clean yourself. And then this individual remains like that maybe throughout his whole day and then goes to his family and he does whatever he needs to do with his family. How disgusting is that? Alhamdulillah for Islam. Sheikh then goes on to say, والفرض غسل الوجه واليدين مسح لرأس غسل كرنجلين والفم والأنف من الوجه جعل والأذن من رأسك ترتيب ولا mentions the six pillars. The first pillar is غسل الوجه washing the face. Where is your face? Vertically is where your hairline starts all the way up into your chin. Horizontally is from here. To the other side. Pay attention, brothers. This is a common mistake. Leaving off this part of the face. The overwhelming majority of scholars, they take the view that this part needs to be washed. Is that clear? The area between your sideburns and also your earlobe. That must be washed. Taib, what is the definition of al-ghasl? By knowing the definition, and everyone should write this down, right? It will allow you to determine as to whether your wudu is valid or not. And as to whether you are in essence wiping or washing. Al-ghasl huwa jarayanul ma'ya It is to make sure that the water flows on that part of the body that needs to be washed. Flows. 
Is that clear? And masah is it is to pass wet hands on that part that needs to be wiped. Is that clear, brothers and sisters? So now you need to ensure that the, that the face is washed, that the water is flowing on that part of the body. Okay? What if you have a beard? Unless you're Somali, yeah? <laughs> No, I'm just joking. Oh, a lot of Somalis do have beards, but a lot of them don't. What if you have a beard? Everyone write down this principle, right? Or the Dhabit here is if it's a thick beard, you have to ensure that you wash the outside. If it's a thin beard, you have to wash the outside and also the inside. Type, how do you determine as to whether it's a thick or a thin beard? And all you sisters who may think that this is not relevant to you, make sure you're writing this down as well. I'm sure you're planning to marry, or you have a husband, or you have a brother or a father that may need insight. And I normally say this also to brothers who think that they don't need to learn about ahkamul hayd rulings pertaining to menses would you rather you teach your wife or she has to go and ask a question to a sheikh ya sheikh there's nothing wrong with this by the way right but it gets a little bit awkward i'm having this particular discharge can you explain and then he asks another question is it like this though or is it like that you'd rather learn it and then teach sahwalallah that's more preferable, I believe. Going back to the point I was making, how do you determine as to whether it's a thick or a thin beard? My beard is the perfect example of that. If you can see the skin behind the beard, then this is a thin beard. Now look at my beard. Is there a part of it that you can see the skin? It's this part, right? I have to make sure that I wash the inside and also the outside. If it's a thick beard, this part of my beard, can you see the inside? Checking as well. Huh? Can you see? You can't. So you have to wash the outside if it's a thick beard. And if it's a thin beard, you wash the outside and also the inside. We mentioned that the face is from where the hairline starts all the way up until the chin. What if you have hair that comes down from the chin? You have to make sure that you wash the outside as well. That's what they call it. Yeah? So any hairs that appear on your face, which you can see the skin behind it, you have to make sure that you wash the outside and also the inside. Number two, you have to make sure that you wash your hands all the way up until your elbows, your elbows included. Let me ask you a question. What's the first thing that you wash when you start your wudu? What's the first thing that you start with? Hands. Is it a sunnah? Is it, is it recommended or is it obligatory? Sunnah. Excellent. What is it that you do after that? Mouth and a nose. And then the face. And then what happens after that? Arms. Hey, where do you start? A common mistake, my beloved brothers and sisters, is that one starts from here. Because he tells himself, I covered it at the beginning. That which you covered at the beginning is independent from that which you are doing now. That one is sunnah, this one is fard, it's a pillar. 
You have to make sure that you start from the fingertip all the way up until the elbow, the elbows included. It's a very, very common mistake. I remember many years ago, we demonstrated this in a small clip and the video was going viral. People were commenting saying, SubhanAllah, I've been doing my wudu wrong for the last 20 years, for the last 30 years. Right? It's a very common mistake. Um, may Allah forgive him. But from now on, inshallah ta'ala, do your wudu properly. Okay? Please, brothers, the questions at end. I'm running out of time. Yeah? Waliyadaini, number three, mashun niraasin ghaslukarijlaini. Number three is to wipe the head. Remember, we mentioned wiping the head here. It's connected to the head. Okay, so if you have hair or not, it doesn't matter. One may be bold, right? Does he still have to wipe? Yes, because we're speaking about wiping the head and not the hair. So you wipe your head all the way up until your neck. This is the narration of Abdullah ibn Zayd. بَدَأَ بِمُقَدَّمِ رَأْسِهِ He started from the front of his head. حَتَّى ذَهَبَ بِهِمَا إِلَى قَفَاهِ And he went all the way down to his neck. Hadith is authentic. Sunnah Nabi Dawood. All the way down to the neck. And then he came back up again. The bare minimum, my beloved brothers and sisters, is... And by the way, you may want to split your page into two. That which is the bare minimum and that which is more than the bare minimum. Because the bare minimum will enable you to understand when your wudu is valid or not. And he's coming with the bare minimum to see as to whether it's valid or not. And it may well be that you have to suffice yourself with the bare minimum because you're in a rush. Or you find yourself in Al-Haram Al-Makki. As we have found ourselves many times, your wudu breaks. And if you leave the Haram, you may not be able to come back in. You're going to miss the Salah in front of the Kaaba. So you have a little bit of water that you could use. Guys, with me. So you would only cover the bare minimum. That's when your fiqh kicks in. Huh? Tayyip. What was the point that I was making? When it comes to wiping the head, the bare minimum is to go down like that. To go down to your neck. To come back up is a recommended sunnah. Tayyib. Here the narration states the neck. Is it bid'ah now to wipe your neck? Sometimes brothers say the ahnaf, they do bid'ah. Huh? They wipe their necks. What I want you guys to really appreciate is the scholars' ijtihad on this point. Did this now come out of nowhere? The other scholars, they say that the neck is of two types. Do you guys agree with that? A part of the neck that is connected to your head and a part that isn't. However, them stating that you should wipe the neck, did that just come out of nowhere? Did they just bring it out of their own back pockets? No. You can see that the understanding here revolves around a statement of the Prophet The more you study, as Ibn al-Qayyim mentions, كُلَّمَا اتَّسَعَ the more one increases in knowledge, the more he increases in mercy. It makes you more open-minded and understanding. And this is why I really, really appreciated the kitab called Bidayatul Mujtahid by Ibn Rushd. Okay? 
It teaches you comparative fiqh. The reasons as to why the scholars differed. It gives you the reasonings. And that's what makes that uh, kitab, that book very distinct. Makes you very open-minded. At least you understand. Even if you don't agree with it, it makes you understand. And it prevents you from taking swipes. Hey, brothers and sisters with me. Um. What if you miss a couple of hairs? You have to try and cover your whole head. If you end up missing a couple of hairs, even though you try to, then there's no problem with that, inshallah ta'ala. What if you have long hair? Whether it's a girl or a brother, a brother may have long hair, right? You wipe all the way up until here. You wipe all the way up until here. Even if you have cane rolls, just wipe all the way up until here. You, need, you don't need to untie it. Is that clear? Anything more than that is not required. <coughs> the fourth pillar is right? to wash your feet. To wash your feet all the way up until your ankles, your ankles included. Right? A common mistake is wobbling your foot under the tap. Wobbling your foot under the tap. By the way, we're not wobblers. Huh? Wobbling your foot under the tap. And he might not necessarily cover the whole foot. And mainly you see that he ends up missing out on the ankles. Woe to the ankles of the hellfire, woe to the ankles of the hellfire. Because he doesn't wash his ankles properly. Right? It's not a light matter. You have to make sure that the foot is properly washed. Okay? What if you have chubby toes and the water doesn't actually reach the inside of your toes when wobbling it under the tap or when placing it under the tap? Because sometimes you just do this, right? You just move your foot under there. There's no problem with that as long as you cover the whole foot. The water flows on the whole foot. There's no problem. What if you have now chubby toes? And the only way that the water reaches there is by using your fingers. There's a principle in Surah Fiqh, مَا لَا يَتِمُّ الْوَاجِبُ إِلَّا بِي فَوْ If you can't fulfill a particular wajib except by something, that something becomes wajib as well. Right? Doing this with your toes is not something that is mandatory. However, if that's the only way that you're going to and get the water to flow in between your toes, and that becomes a must as well. Is that clear? And everything that we mentioned now, we spoke about washing the face, the hands up to the elbows, the elbows included, wiping the head, and washing the feet up to the ankles, the ankles included. The bare minimum is how many times? Once. Anything more than that in sunnah. And just because it is sunnah, brothers and sisters, that doesn't mean we should just take it lightly, Okay. The companions, they would do it because it was a sunnah. Today we leave it off because it's a sunnah. Isn't it so? Right? And what is important that we mention is, brothers and sisters, if you leave off a small amount, a tiny part of that which needs to be washed, are you pardoned for it? Is your wudu valid? If it's just a tiny part, the size of a nail, what do you guys think? Huh? حديث أنس بن مالك رضي الله عنه أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم رأى رجلا وفي قدمه مثل الظفر لم يسبه الماء فقال ارجع فأحسن وضوءك 
Prophet saw a man who didn't wash the size of a nail when washing his feet. It was the size of a nail. He told him, go back and do your wudu again. Prophet, please, questions at the end. Let me at least finish quite a bit before Maghrib. And it looks like we're going to have to go on after Maghrib as well, bi-idhnillahi ta'ala. Let me at least finish uh, the wudu part and then go into the salat. And then we'll only need half an hour after Maghrib, inshallah. And then he goes on to say, وَالْفَمَ وَالْأَنْفَ مِنَ الْوَجْهِ جَعَلَ وَالْأُذْنَ مِنْ رَأْسِكَ تَرْتِيبٌ وِلَا So now how many pillars have we taken? Four. He says, the nose and also the mouth make it part of the face. Right? So part of the face is rinsing your mouth and also sniffing water up your nose, which is known as al-istinshaq. And rinsing the mouth is known as what? Al-madmada. Right? The Hanabila, they take the view that it is a must. It is part of the face and they have the evidences for it. Are you guys with me? They have the evidences for it. I would really love to go through them. However, I'm just not going to get the chance. Maybe inshallah ta'ala, the other videos that are released, you can maybe watch the, maybe we'll just do it here inshallah ta'ala next time around. Okay? Uh, the more um, detailed poetry, which is 50 lines, and we'll cover that in more detail, inshallah ta'ala. Tayyip. And now what we want to accomplish, inshallah ta'ala, is conceptualizing these masail. At least you know how to worship Allah Azza wa Jal accordingly. Make sure that you also rinse your mouth and you sniff water up your nose. Right? If you look at the ahadith that describe the wudu of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, just about all of them you find that he done the madh madh and the istinshaq. So he never used to leave it off. Okay? Also the Messenger of commanded إِذَا تَوَضَّأْتَ فَمَضْمِدُ When you do wudu, then make sure you also do the madh madh and it was commanded. And the default ruling of a commandment is that it is wajib, it's mandatory. Also the Prophet Sallallahu said إِذَا تَوَضَّأْ حَدُكُمْ فَلْيَجْعَلْ فِي أَنْفِهِ مَاءً Whoever makes wudu, then he, may, he needs to make sure that he places the water in his nose. Again, this is the commandment. So these are all part of the first pillar, which is washing the face. Then he goes on to say, The ears are part of the head. If the head is a pillar, and then we are being told that the udun, the ears are a part of the head, it would take the same hukum. It would take the same ruling. Is that clear, brothers and sisters? It's because of a narration uh, in the Muslim Imam Muhammad, but they differed as to whether this was the statement of the Prophet وسلم, or the statement of Abi Umama. The hadith states that the Udunayn, huh? It's part of the head. Al-udunani min al-ra'as. And because of that, they said it is a must. You must make sure that you place your fingers inside of your ear. And, um. Number five, tartib. It has to be in order. You can't decide to start with the feet and then you go back up. Like according to what, that which we are studying, what if an individual jumps into the pool? 
swims. And he's made the intention as well. And the water goes through his nose. Akid, sah? And he goes into his mouth, he opens his mouth and then he closes it again. Then what about the order? How does he come out of the water? Head first, hey, and then? And then his hands come out. But then what about the wiping of the head? Something done in order, right? According to the view of what we're studying, he would have to at least what? Take, do that. You guys with me? After like coming out of the pool, okay, he comes out with his head first, which is the face, and then his hands come out. Takes water, does this, and his feet come out. Is that clear? Wila, the last one is al-mu'alat, number six, it has to be done in quick succession. What happens, especially in today's day and age, right? One's making wudu, he receives a phone call. As he's washing his face, he goes off on a 15-minute tangent and then comes back and just continues with his wudu. Yasluh? La. You have to make sure that it is done in quick succession. What determines as to whether the wudu has now become invalid or not? If the stage before that has become dry. On a normal room temperature, is that how they say it, right? On a normal room or temperature room, I can put it into good English for me, like on a normal, a normal room temperature. However, if it's very, very hot, by the time, even if you are doing everything in quick succession, by the end of the wudu, everything has already become dry because of how hot he is, or it could be so cold. Huh? Like the winter's here. Right? Even after half an hour, he's still wet. So it has to be what? In normal uh, room temperature. واجبه تسمية مع غسل كفين من قيام نوم ليل. Now he goes on to the wajibat, that which is mandatory. Okay, and he mentions two things here. The difference between that which we just studied, the six pillars. Okay, and this wajib that we're about to take, even though if you translate both of them literally, it means that which is mandatory. However, the halabila they distinguish between them. Okay, they distinguish between them, even though the majority of the scholars they don't distinguish between these two terms. That's why Hafid al Hakami says, Well, Fardu Ta'rif and Radif, Uma Yajib, Kasunnatit Tatawu Unad Bustahib. Fard and Wajib are like synonyms, however, here he distinguishes between them. Wajib is also an obligation, however, you are excused if you forget. And then he gives an example, saying Bismillah in the beginning, it is Wajib according to the Hanabila. And they have their reasonings and their arguments. Three hadith. One of them is when the Messiah said, لا وضوء لمن لم يذكر اسم الله عليه. There's no wudu for the one who doesn't mention the name of Allah Azza wa Jalla making wudu. Right? And again, Imam Ahmad is by himself on this in contrary to the majority of the scholars. The rest they say is sunnah. He says it is mandatory. And I suggest every single individual says Bismillah today when? Doing his wudu just so it sticks. And you're taking a safer option as well. Right? If now, the validity of your wudu is on the line, are you going to take that lightly? There's a possibility because of these narrations. Right? They have been authenticated by mountains of knowledge. Like Ibn Kathir. 
حافظ العراقي ابن صلاح ابن تيمية أن أظل نم So you say Bismillah at the beginning The second wajib that he mentions here is or Before I go into the second wajib So you say Bismillah at the beginning Right? And then you start your wudu What if you now forget And you remember after the wudu Do you need to go back? Like when you forget to wash your face No you don't No you don't What if you remember while you're doing the wudu? It's better to restart again. There's a difference of opinion within the madhab, however, you would have to start again. Brothers, everyone stand up, stretch, and then sit back down. Quickly, quickly. Second wajib that he mentions is كفيني من قيام نومي ليلي غسلي كفيني من قيام نومي ليلي Right? It is to wash your hands after waking up from your night sleep. That's because the Prophet ﷺ said إذا استيقد أحدكم من نومه فلا يغمس يده في الإناي حتى يغسلها ثلاثة فإن أحدكم لا يدري أين باتت يده If one wakes up, right? After having gone to sleep at night then he shouldn't dip his hands in the water until, or should I say, Except after having washed it three times Because you don't know where your hands were And if you were to now dip your hands into the water That water would now Become tahir after it was tahor Because of your hands going inside Right And we may well find ourselves in that position And Allah knows best um, Say what if now You just woke up from your night's sleep And then you Go to the tap. Normally you would wash your th- hands three times at the beginning, right? Which is sunnah. Now you have another three. Do you do it six times? Like it goes into one another. It's a tadakhul bayna al-ibadat. Right? Make the intention of covering both and then inshallah ta'ala. Should be fine. Taib. Yanquduhu al-kharij min sabili. كالنجس الكثير للقليل ومس فرج دبر أو قبل بيده وأكل لحم الإبل وغسل ميت وزوال العقل كالنوم والسؤل دواء الجهل أكسلا ينقضه الخارج من سبيل كالنجس الكثير للقليل Here now the sheikh goes on to that which nullifies the wudu Number one is Al-Kharij min Sabil. Anything that comes out of the two passageways, whether it's normal or abnormal. As long as something comes out, this breaks your wudu. Okay? Anything that comes out. Even if that something that comes out is abnormal. Some of the examples that we gave yesterday was, and I used to mention it in East London, when a lot of roadmen used to attend. Let's just say someone now is smuggling drugs. However, after pushing the drugs out, right, doesn't have any impurities connected to it. Is it something that is possible? Yes, it is. He wants to pray. 
And yes, brothers and sisters, there are drug dealers who pray. There are drug dealers who pray. Right? There's a brother, subhanAllah, he never used to get caught. And he had non-Muslim friends. And they all ended up becoming Muslims because they thought this guy, huh? He's never been caught. He must be up to something. So let's become Muslim as well. Every single time he would stop whatever he's doing, he goes and prays. He has a musalla in the back. While he's maybe moving ounces of drugs from A to B. And alhamdulillah, the brother changed. The salati removes the filth and the evil from one's life. No matter what you are doing, you should still pray. Right? And it's only a matter of time before the filth and the evil is eliminated from your life. What if an individual now goes to the GP, the general practitioner, and they stick a thermometer up your backside? Right? And excuse me for these explicit um, examples, but it must be mentioned because they are asked. When the thermometer is entered, it's, it's done with cotton. When it is taken out, it comes out damp. Although broken or not. Why? Because it came out damp. Did it go in damp? Something came out. Remember we said anything that comes out. Whether it is a lot or not. Even if it is one drop. What if a worm comes out? That happens. I've had cases where a brother asked me, okay, this worm came out. What do I do? Or the doctor had to actually take it out because it got stuck inside of there. Or some insects managed to get stuck inside. Does it break? Yes, it does. Number two, A lot of najis, a lot of impurities coming out the rest of your body. As long as it's excessive, repulsive, okay, this would now consider or this would now uh, invalidate your wudu. What are the three impurities that we will mention? Number one, vomit. If a lot of vomit comes out of your interior. Number two, pus. You guys know what pus is? You guys know what pus is? Yeah? When you have like a big spot and then it just keeps coming out, keeps coming out, keeps coming out. Number three is blood. According to the Hanabila, excessive blood breaks your wudu. Number three, touching your private part, whether it's the front or the back. Hanabil normally mentioned three conditions. First condition is that the private part has to be connected. The private part has to be connected. Is that something that is abnormal? Does it make sense? Out of touch with reality? told the brothers the other day, right? I personally read an article. I believe it was on the Washington Post or one of these other American newspapers where a woman was struck with jealousy and she decided to cut his private parts off. And then she threw it in the park. Okay? The forensic scientist or the doctor now has to pick this up. Sah? Wallahi al-Azim, brothers. And because my man sometimes, you know, has like a fiqh antenna, the moment I read these kind of things, right? The first thing that pops to mind is these fiqh masail. And I remember the three conditions. Oh, now it makes sense. And when teaching, I'll mention this example. 
So you don't think that this is completely out of touch with reality. Right? The doctor could be a Muslim or the forensic scientist could be a Muslim. He wants to carry out his prayers. If he now picks it up, and of course, most likely he'll be wearing gloves, but if he makes direct contact with it, picks it up, huh? does that break his wudu? Is it connected though? We mentioned it has to be connected in order for the wudu to be broken. It's not connected here. However, when the doctor now operates it back onto his body, okay, and he's doing his tests after, inshallah, hopefully he's gone back to normal. Comes in contact with it, makes direct contact with it. Does it break his wudu? Yes, it does. That's the first thing. It has to be connected. Number two, by the way, brothers, this is what our Sheikh taught us in the Prophet Sallallahu Masjid, Sheikh Saleh Sindi. And I'm just relating that to you, brothers. But the example was from me. He didn't mention that example. Uh, so don't blast him for that. Number two, it has to be with the hand. If you end up touching your private part with your elbow, does it break it? Doesn't. Right? Number three, direct contact. Hadith Abi Huraira radiallahu ta'ala man afda biyadi la farji laysa dunu hijam faqad wajib alayhi al-wudu. Hadith specifically mentions direct contact. I know some of you guys are going to ask, I just came out of the shower, I put Vaseline on, creamed myself, my thighs and whatever have you, commonly asked question. And then my hand ended up touching my private part. Does it break it? Yes, it does. The Prophet sallallahu said, man masa dhakarahu faliyatawadha. Whoever touches his private part has broken his wudu. Okay, whether you touch your own private part or another touches a private part. Is that clear, brothers and sisters? Whether it's a man touching the private part of a woman or vice versa, right? The one being touched, just merely being touched, it doesn't break his wudu. Except, of course, if he, uh, he is touched with lust and there is contact between them, only then. However, if, for example, now the doctor had to do some tests on someone's private part, which happens, صح? Um, does it break your wudu? The one who the tests are being done on? It doesn't. Does it break the doctor's view? Uh, the doctor's wudu? If he makes direct contact with not using gloves, makes direct contact, does it break his one? If he makes direct, yes, it does. Three conditions, probably. It has to be connected, using the hand, Number three, direct contact. In order for the wudu to break. The way if now a mother is washing the private part of her child, infant, does it break it? Is it a private part? Uh, is it not a private part? It's a private part, right? Does it break it? If she doesn't want to break her wudu, then she can use wipes. There's a way around it. According to this view, it would break it. And it is the safer one as well because of the two hadith that I mentioned. And I say the other hadith is actually what? Abrogated when the Messenger said, Touching your private part is like touching any other part of your body. And he said, we can't reconcile this with the other. And there's another narration as well when the Messenger said, that was narrated by Ibn Abi Shaybim, whoever touches a private part has broken his wudu. But in other narrations, he has the pronoun, whoever touches his private part. So they reconcile between all of them. If one touches a private part, it breaks it. As for the woman, it's the inside. 
Likewise, when it comes to the back, we're not speaking about every part of your backside, not the part that you sit on, but rather uh, that which brings out the feces, that area. Is that clear? Only then he breaks it. Number four, Number four, that which breaks your wudu is eating camel meat. Number five, washing the deceased. We're talking about the one who comes in direct contact with the deceased. Right? It may well be that he's passing certain substances to the one who's washing. As long as he's not coming in direct contact with the dead or the deceased, his wudu is intact. As for the one washing it, it's only him that breaks the wudu. Abu said, The least that we say is that he has to make wudu. Abdullah ibn Abbas also had his view. Are you guys tired? I think the hand's getting tired, huh? Number six is wazawalul aqli, losing your sanity. And then he says, can know me, also like for example, sleep. And then he says, wasu'lu dawa'ul jahli. He concludes the line of poetry by saying, asking removes the disease of ignorance. Al-na'am. Ignorance is a disease. Like those who ended up killing that companion. Right? His head was gashed open and he was in a state of janab. They told him to they told him to take a bath or to take a purificatory bath which ended up killing him. Messiah got so angry. He said, قتلوه, Allah. They killed him. May Allah kill them. And then he said, the cure for ignorance is to ask. Why didn't they ask when they didn't know? That's what the Prophet said. Right? So asking is not something that is blameworthy if you are trying to gain an understanding in the religion. Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, she said, the best of the women, ni'man nisa'u nisa'u al-ansar. Shyness did not stop them from getting an understanding in the religion. لم يمنعهن الحياء من التفقه في الدين. Mujahid ibn Jabbar, he said, the student Abdullah ibn Abbas, Two people don't learn. The one who's shy and the one who's arrogant. Because the shy one never asks. Right? Very, very important that an individual asks. But just not now. You can ask later. And then he says, وَيَمْنَعُ الْمُحْدِثُ مَسَّ الْمُصْحَفِي وَمِنْ طَوَافٍ وَصَلَاتٍ فَعْرِفِي That which the one who has lost his wudu can't do is the following. Number one, touching the mushaf. This is the position of the four great scholars of fiqh. All the great four scholars of fiqh, they take this view. And they have their reasons for it. For example, the narration of Abdullah ibn Abi Bakrin fil kitab alladhi kataba Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ibn Hazm an la yamas al-Qur'an ila tahir. Messen sallallahu alayhi wa sent a book to Amr ibn Hazm and he had a whole load of instructions in there. One of the instructions was an la yamas al-Qur'an ila tahir. The one who touches the Qur'an should only be in a state of purity. And when we say the Qur'an, it's any part of the Qur'an, even the string. Okay, if you want to come in contact with the Quran, you wear gloves, right? You wear gloves, and we have three of the companions as well, like Salman al-Farisi, Saad ibn Abi Waqas, and other than them, right? Who would instruct, right? Who would instruct their companions to make wudu? Like, what if now you're reading from the from the phone? Is that a mushaf? No, it's not. That's fine. When it comes to the mushaf, you must have wudu. 
Number two, women tawaf in doing tawaf. Whether it's an obligatory tawaf or supererogatory tawaf, you must have wudu. You must have wudu. There's evidence for it. Like hadith Aisha, if Ali may fall al-hajj, or Allah tatuf al-bayt hatta taturi. Also the same in Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhu. He said the salat is like tawaf. Illa. Illa. Anhu biha lakum al-mantiq. Except that you're allowed to speak. Number three is wa salatin fa'arifi, the salat. How long left in Maghrib? One example that I forgot to mention is when speaking about the intention, the one who makes wudu just to cool down. Or sometimes you have a shower in order to cool down. It's a very hot summer's day. One goes into the bath and he takes a shower. Right? Or... He goes into the bathroom now to make ablution. If he didn't make the intention, does that uplift the spiritual impurity? Answer is no. Maybe one of the examples that you would like to write down. I know brothers and sisters, you may be very, very tired. And I'll say to you all what our Shaykh said to us when he saw the students getting tired in the Prophet's masjid. He closed his book because the Shaykh sometimes can get very, very detailed in his explanations. And he told them, العلم ثقيل, knowledge is very heavy. ولا يصبر إلا القليل. And those who are patient are only a few. ولا يصير من العلماء إلا قل القليل. And those who become scholars are only a minority within a minority. Knowledge is not easy. It requires a lot of patience and discipline. And when the Sheikh, Sheikh Sulaiman Ruhayli noticed this, this is what he said to the people. Right? They're sitting down, your knees scraping, on the ground and your elbows going through a very tough time, right? It's not easy, right? However, this knowledge is something that money can't buy. And it requires a lot of patience, a lot of discipline. And it reaps its fruits. You'll reap its fruits. So be very patient, inshallah ta'ala. دخول وقت نية والقبلة تفصيلها تطلبه محله. The Sheikh then goes on to speak about that which relates to the salah. A salat, my beloved brothers and sisters, uh, it means linguistically a dua. It means linguistically a dua. Even this linguistic meaning was used by the Prophet ﷺ when he said When you are invited to a walima, then accept the invitation. If you've been invited now to the walima, make sure you accept the invitation. However, if you are fasting, then you should do salah. What does that mean? Start doing the salatul janaza, the funeral prayer and the wedding. Or two rak'at, you start praying two rak'at and then you leave. It means make dua for him. What was the dua that you normally? Barakallahu lak wa baraka alayk wa jama'a. Aynakuma fi khair. Asking Allah Azza to bless his marriage and to bless that which takes place between his has, uh, between him and his wife. Tayyib. As for the technical meaning of a salat is aqwalun wa af'alun maksusa. Sayings and actions of the Salat that starts with a takbir and it ends with taslim. 
As a Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam hadith miftahu salati al-tahur wa tahrimu al-takbir wa tahlilu al-taslim The keys to the salat is purification the tahrim or the tahrim of the salat that which makes that which is halal haram even if you look at takbiratul ihram the actual term itself it comes from haram takbiratul ihram that's what we hear right takbiratul ihram the allahu akbar that makes that which was halal haram like you can't eat you can't drink and so on and so forth and talking طيب so he starts with a takbir and he ends with the taslim tahlilu taslim and that which was haram becomes halal with the salam at the end and then he says shartuha qul again the salah has conditions just like the wudu he says tuhru the first condition is at-tahara which is pretty obvious you must be in a state of tahara must be in a state of tahara before you start the salat from what he says min hadathin from any spiritual impurities and we mentioned they are of two types the mind and also the major number two وَنَجَسٍ. and likewise you need to purify yourself from any visible physical impurities and you have to remove the visible physical impurities from where three places who can give me the three places brothers who didn't attend the class Masjid Imam Nawi. Clothing, Jamil. Your body. The place of prayer. Even if there's one drop of urine on your thighs, you have to make sure that you remove it. With water that is what tahor, you are not excused. Later on you remember, oh the dog accidentally urinated on my clothes. Huh? Or for whatever reason, as you were leaving the toilet, the urine splashed onto you. Okay, you would have to make sure that you remove it. If you prayed, you have to go back and pray again after doing the tahara. Number three, with setru, you have to make sure that you cover your aura. What is the aura of a man? Between the navel and also the knees. That area between the navel and the knees. Does it include the navel? According to the Hanabil, it doesn't. Right? They say, مَا بَيْنَ السُرَّةِ وَالرُّكْبَةِ As mentioned in the narration. The narration states that which is between the navel and also the kneecaps. That area must be covered. Okay? The Hanabil also states that at least one of uh, your shoulders need to be covered. Are you with me? Because of a narration that has been authentically reported one should not pray and his shoulders are uncovered at least one of them needs to be covered at least one of them must be covered okay hey what about if you're wearing a vest does the vest cover the shoulder because it's right here right it's on the neck no. what about the American ones the huh? ones that are worn for basketball. Say, what if now your aura becomes uncovered in the salah? I'm going to give you guys, inshallah, a principle, and this principle will make your life so much more easier. The principle states 
لا تبطل الصلاة إلا إذا اجتمع الكثير مما يظهر من العورة وطول زمن Your salah does not become invalid unless two things happen at the same time. If a lot of your aura becomes exposed and this lasts for a long time. Or should I say a dhabit? Because a dhabit is that which is specific to a particular topic or bab. I'll give you guys an example. And may Allah Azza wa save every single one of you guys from this. And I see it happening all the time, especially in front of the Kaaba. Because he's an inexperienced rookie in putting on the lower garment, you know, the ihram. Doesn't know how to put it on properly. Doesn't have a belt either. When he goes down in ruku', the whole thing just drops. Happens or not? Fortunately, I've had to experience the horror of seeing it sometimes right in front of me. Does the salah now become invalid? Does anybody walk around after it drops with his aura uncovered? So it only makes sense that he picks it up straight away, صح? He covers himself. So did this individual now meet the two conditions? A lot of his aura did become apparent. However, did it last for a long time? These two things must happen at the same time. You with me? Give you guys another example. He happens to be in a desert and a strong wind uncovers his aura and you see it flying a hundred meters away in the space of a couple of moments. His lungi, you guys know what lungi is? You Asians do, eh? <laughs> Somalis, they say ma'wis. Sahih? Ma'wis, or in Arabic they call it izar. This is the lower garment that one wears. Some are connected and some are not. Some has an opening like the ihram, so you have to. And that's the catastrophe one. So what happens is, it flies. Within a couple of moments, already 100 meters away. If it doesn't have anything to cover himself, what do we say about this individual salah? That his salah is now invalid. That his salah is invalid. Is that clear? What if an individual's aura becomes apparent? Okay, let me give you an example. A sister, and a sister asked this yesterday. She prays and then she finds out at the end that some of her hair was showing. And by the way, what's the aura of a woman? Is her whole body excluding the face and also the hands and some scholars, they also add the feet. Okay. But every other part of her body needs to be covered, including her hair. However, she found out that right at the end that some of her hair was uncovered. Maraikum. Like let's just say a couple of strands from the back of her hair are showing. Does it break the salah? Doesn't break the salah. Why? It's not a lot of aura that became exposed. So it has to be what? A combination of a lot of the aura becoming exposed. And also this has to go on for a long time. Tayyib. Hmm?
Are your thighs the aura? Why is it that the Messenger had it uncovered? Is that what you wanted to ask, Muhammad? Messenger was sitting in a room, Abu Bakr walked in, he didn't cover his thighs. Umar walked in, he didn't cover his thighs. When Uthman walked in, he covered it. And then he was asked, why? Shall I not be shy of an individual that the malaika, the angels are shy of? However, that's what he done with his action. But there is a statement where he commanded one of the companions, cover your thighs. Yesterday, Abu Zayd was extremely upset that I didn't go through Usul Fiqh. Give you guys a qa'id in Usul Fiqh. That if you have an action of the Prophet and he has a statement and that statement seems to be contradicting, which one is given priority to? The statement. Right? They say, Because he could have left it uncovered for a number of reasons. It may well be specific for the Messenger to do so. There is that possibility, right? And then you have another principle in Rasul al-Fiqh. Right? If there's ihtimalat in a particular delil, saqat al-istidlalu bihi. Right? Using that as a delil, as an evidence to prove a point, can no longer happen. And there's so many possibilities as to why the Messenger sallallahu had his thighs uncovered. You guys with me? But with his tongue, he clearly and explicitly uttered, غطي فخذيك cover your thighs. Number four is دخول وقتين. The time must enter before you pray. Okay, you can't just say, you know what, I'm going to be at work. I'm going to pray before I start work. I'm going to do dhuhr, asr, maghrib. Alhamdulillah, I'm fine. Every salat has its appointed time. Right? Even if you are at work, brothers and sisters. Did you know that a workplace can't actually stop you from praying? They can't. You are entitled to five minutes every hour as a little small break. That's why you have them going out for fags, right? If he's allowed to go out for a cigarette, why can't I go and pray? You don't ask because you're shy of your boss, right? You're scared of your provision. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the Lord of his provision as well. And your provision. It is him who is providing for everyone. Right? You'll see that they will begin to respect you more when you hold on to your morals and values. They'll respect you more. And Allah azza wa will give you a way out. Should be one of the first things you're thinking about when starting work. And may Allah Azza make it easy for you all. Sometimes what happens is shaitan can get the better of us. And especially in the winter, brothers and sisters, right? Where the salawat are very cramped up together, right? Dhuhr, Asr, and Maghrib. It may well be that you have to pray all of them before your work finishes from nine to five. You can't just say, I'm going to pray it later on. Scholars, they count this from the kabair, the major sins. Number six, sorry, number five, right? Is the intention. And we've spoken about the intention. Number six, wal-qibla. You have to face the qibla. If you're in front of the Kaaba, you have to make sure 
that you face the Kaaba itself. You have to make sure that you're directly facing the Kaaba. As for anywhere else, when you're distant from the Kaaba, as long as you're facing that direction. Right? And you have to try and find the direction wherever you go. I have an app on my phone, it's called Qibla. You have to make sure that the degrees is on zero, and by that you are able to tell uh, if you have faced the Qibla or not. What if you're on a plane and you don't know where the Qibla is? Huh? Yesterday I mentioned something. Huh? Can you use the map? Taib. You might not necessarily be able to use the map accordingly. You try to the best of your ability to face where Saudi Arabia is. You find where Saudi Arabia is. It tells you exactly which direction it's going. And then you try to turn towards it as much as you can. You guys with me? Because you're not going to have internet on your phone most of the time. You don't have connection. You don't have Wi-Fi. That may well be your only solution. However, there is that which takes precedence. And that is, if you are able to pray your prayers after reaching your destination with its conditions and with its pillars, right? Isn't that foremost that you do that when you reach your destination as long as the time doesn't finish? Let's say, for example, you got on the plane an hour before the hur. At 11 o'clock, right? And door is at 12. And you're going to be arriving at your destination at, by the way, what's, what time is Maghrib now? Eight. Let's just say eight o'clock, right? You're going to be arriving at your destination at 6.30. As a traveler, you're allowed to combine between your prayers. It makes sense that you prayed properly when you get to your destination, sir. Instead of now praying when you don't necessarily know whether you're coming with the conditions or not. Um, Everything that we're studying, brothers and sisters, there are there is more detail to it. Al-ilm, knowledge, is an ocean. And everything that we've covered, there is what? A more depth, in-depth uh, elaboration on it. This is why he says, the ins and the outs, inshallah ta'ala, you study it uh, uh, in, in more in-depth texts. أركانها تبدأ بالقيام وبعده تكبيرة الإحرام فاتحة ركوع اعتدال سجود الرفع على ما قالوا ثم جلوس بين سجدتين سكونه ثاني التشهدين والجلسة الأخيرة التسليم ترتيبها وفقك العليم Sheikh now goes on to the pillars. Arkanuha. The pillars are inside of the act of worship as mentioned previously when speaking about the pillars of the wudu. The conditions are what? Prerequisites, that which needs to be met before the act of worship. And they are how many of the salat that the Sheikh mentioned? Six. Here the Sheikh mentions 13 pillars. He mentions 13. However, I can see some eyes rolling around. Those who are humbly studies, uh, those who are humbly students. How many is it normally? Huh? 14. Sahih? What about 15? And some of the books they mention 15. Taib. Do the Hanabila themselves differ 
with how many pillars there are? The answer is no. And I'll explain that inshallah ta'ala in a moment. Arkanuha, he says, The first pillar is, you have to be standing up. Again, let's speak about somebody who's traveling on a plane. When you're on a plane, what is it that you do? How do you pray? What's the first thing that you need to look into? Huh? There's a place that you can stand. Excellent. You have to look for the designated area for prayers. Some flights have that and some don't. Like Saudi Airlines has it. Etihad Airways has it. By the way, I'm not getting paid to promote them. The Emirates normally tends to have it as well and also Qatar Airways. I've taken all of these different flights and they have a designated area for prayer. You will have to ensure that you go there first because when going to the designated area, are you able to cover the pillars and whatever else relates to the prayer? Yes. Step on your seat, can you? No, you can't. That's why the first step is finding the designated prayer area. What if you can't find that? What's the next step? You pray on your seat, but how do you pray on your seat? You must make sure that you come with that which you can, and what you can't, you are excused for it. Can you stand up on the plane? You can, right? Taib. Can you do ruku' on the plane? You can't. Can you do sujood? You can't. So let's just pray sitting down, right? Sahih? Who can give me the principle in qawaid al-fiqhiyah? Ah, tafadal. There was a principle though. I want the line of poetry and I'll give you a tenor. Has anyone memorized it? No, no, not in English. Ah. Now, I want the actual line of poetry in Qawaid al-Fiqhiyah. He says, As-Si'di, some of you guys have studied this poem, وَيَفْعَلُ الْبَعْضَ مِنَ الْمَأْمُورِ إِنْ شَقَّ فِعْلُ سَائِرِ الْمَأْمُورِ Which basically means, if you have now been instructed or commanded to do something, you have to come with it to the best of your ability. يعني meaning, you have to come with what you can, and if the rest are difficult, you are excused. Meaning, you're on a flight now. Can you start the prayer standing up? Yes, you can. Can you do the ruku'? No, you can't. So when it comes to ruku', you sit down, and I'm going to demonstrate it. Okay. You start the salah like this. Allahu Akbar. You read whatever you have to read, then you go into the ruku' position, right? What do you do? You do ruku' when the seat is right in front of you. La. You sit down. Subhana Rabbi Al-Azim, Subhana Rabbi Al-Azim. Subhana Rabbi Al-Azim. Right? And then what do you do? You have to stand back up because you can't stand up. Sami'allahu liman hamidah. Rabbana lakal hamd. And then you go back and sit down again. Subhana Rabbi Al-A'la, Subhana Rabbi Al-A'la, Subhana Rabbi Al-A'la. Make sense? So you have to come with that which you can. I know sometimes you feel shy. Everyone's going to be looking at me. Huh? What's this bearded guy going to be doing next? Huh? As soon as you say Allahu Akbar, huh? <laughs> say it quietly, inshallah. Huh? So you have to make sure that you start the salah in the standing position. حديث أبي هريرة رضي الله تعالى عنه إذا قمت إلى الصلاة فأسبغ الوضوء ثم استقبل القبلة فكبر. First thing I was mentioning in the hadith is when you stand up for prayer. 
right? Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam he says, Pray standing up, you can't pray standing up, you have to pray. Sitting down, you can't pray sitting down, you have to pray. Lying down. What if an old man, right, wants to pray? How does he start the prayer? You find some old men, Hadahumullah, may Allah Azza wa help them all and guide them and give us all beneficial knowledge. Right? A guy can walk, mashallah. He walks from his car all the way to the rows of Masjid al-Nabwi. But then grabs his chair. As the salah starts, he sits down. Yasrah. Remember Sheikh Abdul Zakh al-Badr, may Allah Azza wa honor him. He was one time advising an old man who did that. And he's complaining to the Sheikh, arguing, saying, Sheikh, I can't. And he's standing there for the last 10 minutes saying, I can't. What do you mean you can't? You just stood there for 10 minutes. So you have to come with what you can. And what you can't, you are excused. So this old man, if he can start the prayer, because he can in this situation, he just walked from his car all the way here, right? He starts the salah in the standing position, and then if he gets tired and he can't do the rest, what does he do? He sits down. Is that clear, brothers? You're never excused. I remember one time I was in a hospital bed. Am I excused now? I can barely move due to the operation that I had. Right? I have to what? Pray lying down. I have to pray lying down. The second pillar is the takbiratul ihram. A common mistake, brothers and sisters, is you see that the jama'ah is taking place, right? In the masjid. The imam goes into the ruku' position. He's at the door. He wants to catch the salah. What does he do? Goes sprinting towards the rows and just dives into the ruku' position. Maraikum. And a lot of the time he forgets the takbir. If he says Allahu Akbar and then goes into it, Jayid, no problem. And when he says that takbiratul ihram, that takbirah, it is what? The takbiratul ihram. Because you have other times when you say Allahu Akbar, right? We're not speaking about that now. We're speaking about the Allahu Akbar that enters you into the salah, which is a pillar. He has to make sure that he says Allahu Akbar and then he goes. And he has to also be in a standing position, not moving. So Allahu Akbar and then goes into the position. Common mistake is, he might not even say Allahu Akbar. The other common mistake is, instead of saying the Allahu Akbar that enters you into the salat, he says the other one. He intends the other one, which is not a pillar. His salat has not even started yet. Did you know that your salah won't start unless you intend that this Allahu Akbar is the Allahu Akbar that enters you into the salah? Pretty common, right? Number three, Fatiha Tun. Reading the Fatiha. I want all you guys to remember these three individuals. The Imam, the one praying behind the Imam, and the third is the one who's praying by himself. Because we're going to be making mention of them, okay, from time to time. Who has to read the Fatiha? Let's take this one out. No, not the three mason sign. Huh? The first one is who? The Imam. You guys with me? Second one is the Ma'mum. And the third is the one who's praying by himself. The one praying behind the Imam. Okay? Does he have to read the Fatiha according to the Hanabila? No, he doesn't. 
especially if he is reading out aloud. And they have the evidence and pretty strong brothers and sisters, right? I really don't want to go into it at this moment in time for the sake of time, but they really do have the evidences. And it's a very deep discussion amongst the scholars, right? Only the Imam and the one praying by himself, he must read it. As for the one who's praying behind the Imam, he has to listen attentively. Right? He has to listen attentively. And you have to make sure that you come with all the tashdidat and you come with its letters. And if you end up changing the word that Fatiha is invalid, which will render your salah to be invalid. What does tashdidat mean? Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Rabbi Shadda. So make sure you come with all of them. Right? And especially if you change the meaning, for example, Sirat al-Ladina an'amtu alayhim. An'amta, right? An'amta. With the fatha. You know what you just said? The right path that I bestowed upon. You change it like that. Well, when you say an'amta, that which you bestowed upon me, oh Allah. You didn't bestow nothing upon anyone, brother. Huh? Number four, ruku'un. The ruku' the bowing position. Number five is i'tidalun, coming back up from the ruku' position. Coming back up from the ruku' position and standing straight and erect. Is that clear, brothers and sisters? Number six is sujood. And in every rak'ah, there's two sujoods, two prostrations. And you must come with both of them. You must come with both of them in order for that rak'ah to be valid. If you leave one and you come with the other, that rak'ah is rendered invalid, which will make the salah invalid. And every sajda, brothers and sisters, has seven pillars. Don't worry, it's not getting complicated. It's very simple. The seven pillars are, the first one is your forehead with the, with the nose. That's one. Three and four are your two hands. Five and six no, 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 no. Sorry, two and three are your two hands, right? Four and five are your two kneecaps. Your knees have to be on the ground. Six and seven, it has to be like that. It has to be like that, touching the ground. Sometimes you see the, huh? the toes wobbling somewhere, high and above. You have to make sure that it's what? Touching the ground, connected. Due to the hadith of Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhu, Umirtu an asjud ala sab'ati azumin, I was commanded to prostrate on seven parts of my body. The Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said. Number seven, al-raf'u ala ma qalu, coming back up from the sujood position. Right? That's a pillar. You have to come up. Tayyib, someone may say, okay, what if I stand up? I'm still coming up, aren't I? No, this is why the next pillar states what? Sujudun arrafu ala ma qalu thumma julusun bayna sajdatayni. So when he does come back up, he has to be in a sitting position. Right? Thumma julusun bayna sajdatayni. That's why he said thumma julusun bayna sajdatayni. When you come back up, you have to be in a sitting position. You have to be in the sitting position. You can't decide to stand up and then go into sujood again. La. You're leaving off a pillar, right? 
Because one also may remain in the sitting position, but he's not coming up. So the sixth pillar is the prostration. The seventh pillar is to come up. And number eight is to be in a sitting position when coming up. That's why he says, between the two prostrations. Number nine is sukunuhu. Right? Being calm in every one of those positions. Being calm in every one of those positions. Is that clear, brothers and sisters? Messenger Wasallam, he said in a hadith, the worst of the thieves is who? The one who carries out a highway, or should I say, a bank robbery in broad daylight, or the one who robs old women, right? preys on the vulnerable. Is that the worst of the thieves? Messenger Wasallam, he said, the worst of the thieves is the one who steals from his salat. How did he steal from his salat? Doesn't do the record properly, doesn't do the sujood properly. You see this video going around and I don't find it funny at all. Right? And you find a caption, Ferrari Imam. Every Ramadan. Sahih? How does he pray 11 rak'at or maybe should I say 20 rak'at of taraweeh? Up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. And then we're circulating this video, Ferrari Imam. This is not a salah, brothers. This salah is not even being accepted. This is not a salah that Allah Azza wa Jalla is pleased with because of how it's being prayed. Right? Number 10, the second Saying assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah on both sides. Okay, what if you are the imam of a masjid and if you were to now say assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah when turning to your left or turning to your right, the people maybe on the other side of the masjid or maybe those who are praying outside, especially on the 27th when it gets very, very packed, they won't hear you. Uh. Imagine, right, this is the mic, sah? Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. If it's a masjid that has uh, a not so good mic system, they may struggle. Turning to the left and to the right, is that a pillar? It's a sunnah. This is again when your fiqh comes in. If you don't speak directly into the mic, you may have a lot of confusion, right? They're going to struggle outside. They don't know is it finished, is it not finished? So don't ruin the salat of the musallin and use your fiqh. Just speak into the mic. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Abbas. Number 13 is tartibuha. There has to be an order. There has to be an order. You can't decide to start with the sujood and then you go back up and then you come back down. It don't work like that. It has to be in order. Why wasn't the 14th mentioned? What is missing? Which pillar is actually missing from that which we didn't mention? Other than those who studied in Masjid Imam Nawi. Huh. Huh. Sending salawat upon the Prophet Do the Hanabila differ as to what a pillar is or not? Why wasn't it mentioned? 
Sometimes the Mashaikh, sorry? Jameel, excellent. Sometimes they may mention less than others, not that they differ with him, but because two of the pillars, two of the pillars they fall under one. When he said the second tashahud, that which also comes under it is the as-salat ala nabi Are you guys with me? Um, and sometimes they may even mention uh, a couple of them under one another. And sometimes they might separate between them. They don't actually differ with what a pillar is, but they might just have different numbers with how, and that is, goes back to how they calculated it. We're nearly done, brothers. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. We are nearly done. I know you guys are going to ask, what if an individual now leaves off one of these pillars accidentally? We'll come on to that, inshallah ta'ala. One thing we all agree is that if one leaves off any of the aforementioned, purposefully or intentionally, a salah is invalid. Someone turns around, you know what? I can't be bothered today to do the record. I'm feeling... Um, very, very tired, I've had a long day. I'm just gonna go straight into sujood because sujood is a comfortable position, but I'll make up for it by spending much longer there than the rukur. Yasluh? Doesn't. A salah becomes invalid because the intention left it off. Now we move on to the wajibat. We're nearly done, brothers. I'm going to give you guys a break, inshallah ta'ala, in approximately 10 minutes. And we'll only have a little bit left. He now goes on to the wajibat. The difference between a pillar and a wajib, my brothers and my sisters, is that the wajib, okay, if one leaves it off accidentally, it continues with his salah. The same doesn't apply to, the same doesn't apply to the pillars. There are some ahkam related to the pillars which I will come on to. I remember I really, really struggled with Understanding the mas'ala, if you leave of a pillar accidentally, what do you do? A very long time ago. However, now we have eight wajibat. Eight acts that are wajib, that are mandatory. Okay? And you must come with them. However, if you leave any of them accidentally... Do you stop your salah? Do you restart your salah? No, you continue. All the way up until the end and then you make up for it with the two prostrations of forgetfulness. Number one is takbiratul intiqal, the transitional takbir. I call it the transitional takbir. All of the Allahu Akbars other than the first Allahu Akbar that enters you into the salah. Every single one of them is mandatory. But the question is, when do you actually say it? It's a common mistake. I had to pull up a lot of imams. This Ramadan, right? Because when moving from one stage to the next, they will say, Allahu Akbar, like this, look. Inna shaniyaka huwa al-abatar. Allahu Akbar. And then it goes down. It's called takbiratul intiqal for a reason. The transitional takbir meaning you have to come with it when? In transition. You have to make sure that you say it when you are moving. Not when you're standing or when you've reached the ruku' position or the sujood position. That could, if you do that intentionally, possibly invalidate your salah. 
right? You have to do it when moving. Is that clear, brothers and sisters? Number two is tasmi'un. Sami'allahu liman hamida. Remember, we have the imam. We have the one praying behind the imam and we also have the, the one praying by himself. Right? Sami'allahu liman hamida is only a must upon who? The imam and the one praying by himself. The one praying behind the imam, he doesn't have to say that. Why? Because the Prophet said, وَإِذَا قَالَ الْإِمَامُ سَمِعَ if the Imam says Sami Allah liman hamida, then you, as someone who's praying behind, says Rabbana wa alhamd. Is that clear? You guys with me? As for the Imam and also the one praying by himself, they have to come with something else, and this is the third wajib, at-tahmidu, which means Rabbana wa alhamd. So after he says Sami Allah liman hamida and then goes into the standing position uh, when still he says Rabbana walakil hamd. Is that clear, brothers, sisters? And by the way, you can say Rabbana lakal hamd without the well. You can say Rabbana walakil hamd. You can also say Allahumma Rabbana lakal hamd without the well. And you can also say, and this is the fourth one, Allahumma Rabbana walakil hamd. They are all authentic and sometimes it's good. One brother came up to me and asked, how can I maybe increase in my khushur? Right? Sometimes they, uh, interchanging between different sunan, it causes you to be more focused. And also you have the long dua that the Messenger used to make that many may not necessarily know of. Uh, and this is actually authentic. He would say, Allahumma rabbana lakal hamd mil as-samawati wa mil al-ard wa mil ma shi'ta min shayin ba'd. أهل الثناء والمجد حق ما قال العبد وكلنا لك عبد اللهم لا مانع لما أعطيت ولا معطي لما منعت ولا ينفع الجد منك الجد and then he would go into sujood try to look up the meanings of this dua right sunnah of the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam number four تسبيحة الركوع Number five was sujudi. That which you say in your ruku' and also that which you say in your sujud. What do you say in your ruku'? Subhana Rabbiyal Azim. What do you say in your sujud? Subhana Rabbiyal A'la. According to the Hanabali, you must come with both of them at least once. Anything more than that is sunnah. And they also say that you can't just choose another supplication or another dhikr in place of this. For example, Aisha radiallahu ta'ala, she said, Kanabi sayyakulu fi ruku'i wa fi sujudih, subhanakallahu rabbana wa bihamdik, Allahumma khfirli. If you wanted to interchange and just say that and not this, they would say, no, you have to come with at least one of them to say, subhana rabbi al-azim in your ruku'. And in your sujud, subhana rabbi al-a'la, at least once, anything more than that is sunnah. Why do they say it's mandatory? This is a nice benefit. When the statement of Allah, فَسَبِّحْ بِسْمِ رَبِّكَ الْعَظِيمِ came down. Hadith Uqb bin Amr عند Ahmed. The Messenger said, make sure you do this in your ruku'. You guys with me? And likewise, when Sabbih isma rabbika al-a'la came down, Prophet said, ij'aluha fi sujudikum. Make sure you say it in your sujud. And he commanded this. And the base default ruling of a commandment 
is it's wajib وأصله الوجوب ثم قد ورد إلى معان فاستمع لما يعد so you have to come with it at least once then let me just ask you guys a question again what if an individual now forgets سبحان ربي الأعلى in his sujood what does he do there and then huh? now he forgot خلاص now he's in a stunning position Huh? He continues with his prayer And then he makes up for it He doesn't go back He makes up for it at the end by coming with The two prostrations of Forgetfulness Number six He says To say At least once between the two sujuds Say Rabbi Ghfirli to say at least once between the two sujuds. The hadith of Hudayfa says that the Messiah has done it twice, but the bare minimum is to say it once. Right? Why do I keep talking about the bare minimum? At times, brothers, let's be honest, we find, and sisters, we find ourselves in these situations where um, the baby's crying, or someone who's praying behind you is pregnant, your wife might be pregnant. And she asks you, can you shorten the prayer because you're praying at home? What do you do in this kind of situation? Make it long? Uh, you get into, inside of her central nervous system by making it long? What do you guys think? Now you shorten it. And that's what the Prophet used to do. He would say that I could hear the crying of a baby and then I would shorten the prayer. Again, this is when your fiqh kicks in. So it's very important to know the bare minimum. People ask you the question, is my salah sahih? I only done this once. Only done this twice, or I done this, or I done that. To know the bare minimum, it allows you to validate. Wadih? Or validate. And validate. Validate. Number seven is the The first tashahud. The first tashahud. Number eight is. Being in the sitting position when doing the first shahud. And then he goes on to say, Everything other than what we should, that everything other than that which we have taken, brothers and sisters, is a sunnah. Okay. Why is it important knowing all of this? So again, as I mentioned earlier, right? So you know that which validates your salah. So if you memorize the pillars and the and the wajibat, you know what is valid and what is not. Everything other than that is a sunnah. Like raising your hands in the salah. Huh? Had Abdullah ibn Umar Nabi Sankan Yarfa Yudai Hadva Mankibaida Ftata Salat Wida Kabbara the Rukur Aida Rafa Rasumina Rukur. He would do this at four times. Right? Mubatiluha Tarukun li Ruknin Mutulaka. وترك واجب بعمد حقق وترك شرط وكذا الكلام والفعل إن يكثر كذا السلام أثناءها تعمد الزيادة قهقهة إذ نافت العبادة The Sheikh now moves on to that which will nullify your salah. The first thing that he starts with is, or the first point that he makes is, ترك لركن مطلقة. Leaving off a pillar in whatever circumstance it may be. Okay. Leaving a pillar in whatever circumstance it may be. 
Intention in leaving off the pillar, as we mentioned earlier, that would invalidate the salah. What if an individual now left off the pillar accidentally? Which basically means we have two scenarios, brothers and sisters, right? First scenario is if one remembers that he forgot the pillar before he starts the Fatiha in the second rak'ah. So you have the first rak'ah and then you have the second rak'ah. In the first rak'ah, brothers and sisters, you have to come with a ruku' right? A bowing position. We mentioned previously that this is what? A pillar. But for whatever reason, you end up leaving it off out of forgetfulness, we'll say. Okay? So when he was in a standing position after finishing the surah, after the fatiha, you normally go down into ruku' right? Instead of going into ruku', he went into sujood. Went up, sat, went into sujood again, and then he stood back up. What do you do when you stand up? What do you read in the second rakah? Fatiha, right? Before I'm about to read, ah, oh, he remembers that he forgot the rukur. What does he do in this situation? The first scenario is, brothers and sisters, he remembers before he starts the fatiha. Huh. You go back into the rukur position in this scenario. Is that clear? I really struggled with this mess a very long time ago. Right? And I sat down trying to figure out how I can maybe articulate this to students. Have you guys understood this first scenario? Yeah? You forgot the pillar in the first rak'ah. What do you do? When remembering before starting the fatiha in the second rak'ah, you just go back into that position. You're standing right going to the record position. And then you carry on your salat from that point on. After the ruku', what happens? What would you normally do? You come back up, right? And then you go into sujood again. And then you sit, and then you go into sujood again, and you continue like that. Everything that happened from the time that you stood up all the way back to what you left off. And in this situation, it's from the ruku' all the way to the standing. That's void. You can put a cancel on it. Everybody get that? I shall demonstrate it. I'm now in the second rakah. I'm in the second rakah. You guys with me? I'm about to start the Fatiha. I was in the sujood. I went up. Now I'm in the I'm about to read the Fatiha. I remember. What did I leave off? What do I do? I go back into the record. What normally happens after the record? Samia Allah, Liman Hamidah. Rabbana, Walaka Alhamd. And then what do I do? Sujood. And I sit, sujood, and then I come back up and I continue like that. Clear? This is the position of the majority of scholars. Taib. What if this individual now remembers? Look, he forgot the ruku', right? Same scenario. He stands back up. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Ah, I forgot. What does he do here? Jameel, that which happens here is, brothers and sisters, this rak'ah now that he's in, in which he just recited Surah Al-Fatiha, now becomes his first rak'ah. 
ist da klar. As for that which he prayed before that, you can count it as void, you can cancel it. Is that clear, brothers and sisters? Have you guys understood the masala? This is the beauty of studying a madhab. Because if you look directly at the hadith of the Prophet wasallam, you may struggle to derive this or you may struggle to find a way of deducing it from these hadith. However, these masail are mentioned in books of fiqh. Even the lines of poetry that I mentioned is from the Nazm al-Jali, which is close to an alfiya, close to being a thousand-line poem. طيب number two وترك واجب بعمد حقيقة the next act that nullifies the salah is to leave off a wajib how many wajibs did we mention today eight if you leave off any of them by purpose your salah becomes invalid number three وترك شرط likewise leaving off any of the conditions of the salat intentionally that would Render your salat void. Number four, وَكَذَا الْكَلَامُ Speaking in the salah. What would you have to say in order for it to become void? If two letters come out of your mouth, then your salah has now become void. Yeah? You have another view. Huh? Number five, Number five is excessive movement in the salat. Say what determines excessive movement in the salah? Okay. If the one looking at you, my beloved brothers and sisters, right? Or the way maybe I should phrase this is, you're moving so much that the one looking at you thinking, this guy's not even praying. This guy's not even praying. That's how he perceives you. You guys with me? Another position in the madhab is if they say they, they say three consecutive movements, that's also the Shafi'a madhab. Three consecutive movements would nullify your salah. The Messenger did do a number of actions in the salah, like holding a child, returning the salam, as long as that which you do in the salah does not uh, leave the Rome of that which the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi done, then inshallah ta'ala your salat remains intact. Or the realm. Tayyib. Number six is kada salamu. Salaming out of the salat before its proper time. This individual now salams out and then he leaves, right? Goes and sits in front of his Xbox and he's playing. Then remember that only what? Pray to. Is the salah not valid? He has to go and repeat the whole salah again. However, if he remembers straight away and then goes back, his salah is intact, inshaAllah ta'ala. That's why he says, Athna'aha, anytime during the salat, that he salams out. Number seven, ta'amudu ziyada, to do something extra intentionally in the salah. Number eight, قَهْ قَهَةٌ إِذْ نَافَةِ الْعِبَادَةِ To laugh. Why do you say قَهْ قَهَ? It comes from ha ha. Huh? 
if two letters come out qah qah that comes out like that then hmm طيب let's خلاص we've reached the end now okay and in any of these scenarios you would still have to come with the two prostrations of forgetfulness as long as it's not something that you've left off or that which has made your salat void like for example if one leaves off the pillar and then he makes up for it he comes with the scenarios that I mentioned right um, he salams out before his time and then he goes back and he covers everything at the end he would have to come with sajdate as-saho طيب تفضل يا حسن الله إليكم just read all of it inshallah it's only a little bit left now خلاص فصل الصيام واجب في شهر أي رمضان من طلوع الفجر إلى غروب الشمس عن إدخان شيء إلى الجوف بأي حال والاستقاء وكذا الحجامة لصائم مفسدة صيامة يحرم إقدام من المكلف على أمور حكمها لم يعرفي فحصل العلوم واسأل أهلها في الواجبات واحذرن جهلها يا رب حسن الفعل والختام والحمد لله على التمام The Sheikh now moves on to uh, the chapter of fasting. He says, Faslu al-Siyam. Faslu al-Siyam. Al-Siyam, my beloved brothers and sisters, linguistically, it means what? Al-Imsaq, to withhold or to refrain. Okay? The technical meaning of al-Siyam, it means what? Imsaq al-Makhsus, min shakhs al-Makhsus, fi zaman al-Makhsus, biniyat al-Makhsusa. It is to stay away from something specific. By a specific person at a specific time with a specific intention. Okay? No, by now the hands are extremely tired. Don't worry about it, inshallah. Just refer back to the videos. Yeah? You have to withhold from something specific. And this is now what? Divided into two. There's two types of things that you need to withhold from. Number one, that which is going to nullify your fast. And this is what we're going to be taking in a moment. Number two, is what that which is going to destroy your fast reduce the reward right and this is the essence of fasting a lot of people think khalas as long as i stay away from food drink and sexual intercourse then khalas i've met the objective we are trying to attain what in the month of ramadan when fasting so that you may attain a taqwa and a taqwa is to place a shield between yourself and that which you fear, as Ibn Rajah mentioned. And this shield is what? To do what Allah told you to do and to stay away from what Allah told you to stay away from. The month of Ramadan, the way I put it, is like an annual boot camp huh? or like an induction or a training camp. That month, you need to control your body parts from doing haram. That's why Jabir and Abdullah radiallahu ta'ala anhu said, When you do fast, then make sure your ears are fasting, your eyes are fasting, and also your tongue is fasting. Let me ask you guys a question. What if an individual now, or should I say, 
if one now normalizes refraining from that which I just mentioned, these three body parts from haram, what kind of person do you think he'll become? I genuinely believe waliyun min awliyaillah in today's day and age. He'll become a beloved servant of Allah. A saint. Do you guys agree with that? A lot of the haram that we fall into, where does it normally stem from? Especially if you live in Brixton here. Huh? Which body part, brothers? The eyes, the sisters. Okay? Especially now with the era of social media. Isn't it the eyes that's causing a lot of filth to enter into our lives? So this is exactly what we're trying to attain in the month of Ramadan. When you normalize holding these body parts back, you become someone of a taqwa, inshallah ta'ala. Someone who's conscious of Allah Azza wa so he says, Wajibun fi shahri, it is mandatory in a month. And then he says, Ay Ramadan, in the month of Ramadan, min tulu'il fajri. Because earlier we mentioned that you only fast at a specific time from sunrise all the way up until sunset, ila ghrubi shamsi. And then he speaks about that which one needs to withhold from that will nullify his fast. The first thing that he mentions is, Itkhali shayin ila jawfi bi hali. Right? Consuming. Anything, whatever it might be. Anything that enters into your interior, right? Whether it's edible or not. Whether it can be digested or not, right? Whether it's normal or abnormal. Whether you're moving things from A to B, huh? smuggling. Someone may say, okay, I want to smuggle drugs in the month of Ramadan. But he's still fasting. Is it possible? Yes, it is. Right? But he thinks, okay, because this is not something that you can eat, and it's fine. La. I would break it. Number two, The second point that he mentions from that which nullifies your fast is making yourself vomit. Right? And when making yourself vomit, something has to come out. As they mention in the books of Al-Fiqh. He made himself vomit. How do you make yourself vomit? Either by smelling something that is disgusting intentionally or maybe taking your fingers and sticking it down your throat or looking at something that's disgusting is that clear number three al-hijama is what cupping the one cupping and the one being cupped again it's a matter of difference of opinion right the hanabila they buy themselves on this issue uh, and the majority of scholars they take the other view and they have a point as well when the Messiah walked past two individuals in al-baqi' and he said after al-hajim al-mahjum the one cupping and the one being cupped they've both broken their fast the one thing I forgot to mention pertaining to making yourself vomit we've mentioned that right something has to come out if nothing comes out it doesn't break it what if you not accidentally vomit does it break it whoever unintentionally vomits and it's fine doesn't need to make it up however if you make yourself vomit you have to no says all of these aforementioned points is going to what? Nullify your fast. There's so many other things that would nullify the fast. Why didn't the Sheikh mention it? But he mentions it in level two, in the 59 poetry. Why? Who did he author this mandoma to? For, for kids. Do the kids really need to, the young six and seven year olds, do they really need to know about? On having sexual intercourse with his wife and 
and uh, maybe becoming intimate with the opposite gender, right? And kissing and so on, and fondling. That's why he left off certain points. And then he says, يحرم إقدام من المكلف على أمور حكمها لم يعرف the conclusion. Sheikh he says, it is not permissible for one who is religiously obliged to go forth in doing something without him knowing the ahkam. This normally happens in which situation, brothers and sisters? Hajj, also business. Everyone jumps onto Bitcoin. Alhamdulillah, I didn't invest because they're doing horrible now. Huh? Hajj has gone into the ground, right? It's doing really bad. Everyone just jumps onto everything. You'll be surprised, brothers. I sometimes hold consultation sessions with businessmen who are very, very wealthy. And you'll be surprised. You'll be surprised how common it is for them to fall into riba and he doesn't know it. Did you know that Umar al-Khattab used to stop certain individuals from coming to the markets because they didn't know the ahkam? He wouldn't allow them to trade. Right? Likewise, I really do suggest that you learn about the ahkam pertaining to nikah, marriage. Save you a lot of headache. Knowing each other's rights. Living in this country, it causes the minds to become polluted. Right? Everything is 50-50. Huh? Everything is 50-50. One day you're in the kitchen and one day she's in the kitchen. Ma ra'ikum. This is 2022 for you. UK. Huh? So it's important that you know before you embark on something. And it says, go and attain knowledge and ask its people. Don't go and ask everyone and anyone. If you want medical advice, who are you going to see consultation from? The most qualified doctor that you know, right? Likewise, when you want to construct a building, you're going to go to the one who's most qualified. Sah? Likewise, when you need some, uh, when you need a solicitor's advice, you're going to go to the one who has a very good track record. And likewise, when it comes to your car, are you going to take it to any mechanic? You're going to take it to the one who has the best reputation, right? Because your car is on the line, your money is on the line. Why is it but when it comes to knowledge, we just think we can just, you know, go into Google and take it from whoever it might be and, and just say whatever we want. It says, Ask its people when it comes to the compulsory acts and be wary of being ignorant about it or ignorant of it, should I say. And it says, Ya Rabbi husnal fi'li wal khitami alhamdulillahi ala tamami Ya Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give him a good ending and he praises Allah azza wa jalli does hamd for having completed this manzoma. I have a sunnah, brothers and sisters, whenever I finish a particular book, I take the time out to thank some of my teachers. Whatever I mention to you, brothers and sisters, I took it from the likes of Sheikh Saleh Sindi, who I believe has paid a visit to the college, one of the most knowledgeable people I've personally met. Some even mentioned that when he started teaching in the Prophet's masjid, it was one of the best things that happened to the haram in the last 100 years. The man was teaching us all fiqh. And you think that this is his speciality. People think he only knows aqidah. He taught us fiqh 
and he also taught us aqidah and that's his speciality that's what he's very well known for right Sheikh Sulaiman Ruhayli may Allah Azza wa Jal honor him Sheikh Abdul Salam Shwayir Sheikh Mahal Mukhtar Shanqiti and finally Sheikh Amir Bahjat may Allah Azza wa Jal preserve him who is uh, the teacher or should I say the author of this and, and also a good friend of mine who I benefit a lot from his name is Sheikh Abdul Razak he's doing his PhD Sheikh Abdul Razak Al Khalafi and the reason why I do this it's because Imam Al-Si'adi rahmatullahi alayhi in his poem of Al-Qawaid Al-Fiqhiyya what did he say? وَهَذِهِ قَوَاعِدٌ نَظَمْتُهَا مِنْ كُتْبِ أَهْلِ الْعِلْمِ قَدْ حَصَلْتُهَا All of these legal maxims that I put in the form of lines of poetry. Where did I take it from? I benefited it from the books of the people of knowledge. And then he makes dua for them. يَا اللَّهِ جَزَاهُمُ الْمَوْلَىٰ عَظِيمُ الْأَجْرِ May Allah Azza wa Jal grant them good. May Allah forgive and pardon them. The poet he also says, If anyone benefits you with just one benefit, then always be thankful. So-and-so benefited me and get rid of your kibir your arrogance and your hasid. Sometimes it might be a classmate that benefits you. You would have to what, get rid of your ego in order to be thankful, sah? And that is tawadu. And one thing that I really benefited from the author of this book, uh, this poem, Sheikh Amir Bahjat, that he's extremely humble. Imagine, he's the teacher in the Prophet's masjid. He's a teacher. He taught the whole of Zad al-Mustaqni' in the haram. Please, brothers, when you go home and sisters, Google him and see how young the Sheikh is. Look how young the Sheikh is. And Allah Azza wa Jal granted him that. And it's not surprising that he became a teacher because of how humble he is. وَمَا زَادَ اللَّهُ عَبْدًا بِعَفْوٍ وَمَا تَوَاضَ أَحَدٌ لِلَّهِ إِلَّا رَفَعَ Never does an individual humble himself except Allah will raise him, right? When a Sheikh comes from Riyadh called Sheikh Abdul Samish Shwayir, you see him sitting in the front. Side by side with his students taking down the notes. Allah Al-Azim. And he's reached the last level that you could reach. Like he's a teacher in the Prophet Sallallahu Masjid. Does it get bigger than that? And he's still so humble. And sometimes what happens is you learn a little bit, right? And you begin to think that you know when in reality you are still in need of benefiting. And we all are. That's why we say from the cradle to the grave. Don't let it ever be a point where the shaitan whispers to you. Allah khalas, I'll just, you know. I don't need it. I'm just going to maybe listen to this class online or whatever. You don't attend the classes out of arrogance. And not because you're busy, but simply because of arrogance. And that can easily creep in. And it's something that a person who ascribes to knowledge should really fear for. As Ibn Taymiyyah mentioned, Many of those who ascribe to knowledge, they become what? tested with kibir and then they are deprived of knowledge just like the people are, who are devout worshippers are tested with showing off may Allah Azza wa Jal honor every single one of you guys I really appreciate you guys coming even though it was short notice on a weekday and attending in numbers may Allah Azza wa Jal honor every single one of you 
and make this a means of understanding the religion. Ameen, innahu waliyu dhalika wal qadiru alayh.